Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast, and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. For real. Yeah, no, Ehud's genius. That's why this whole thing works. He is good, although he's never been this professional for me. No, I make him. I I definitely know how to Gary V this motherfucker up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Have you ever met Gary? No, but I've you, you, you know seen I'm, any I'm of his podcasts. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. I the funniest one is <laughs> is him and Tony Robbins. Yeah. And it seems like Gary V on that interview is on Adderall or something. Well, he's always feeling like he's on Adderall. Yeah, right? maybe I mean, that's just his personality. Like, but yeah. it's a, it's kind of hysterical. There's like they don't they don't vibe or something. But anyway, not to I'm not dissing it cuz I'm in, I like things like that. Ins, inspirational yeah. people doing entrepreneurial. Well, and he's trying to Here, put the mic up. Not in my eye? No, yeah, not in your eye. Yeah, you, right to your mouth. Really? I saw Mike yeah, sweat right into the eyeball. Right Wait, is Gary V the dude you told me about on the train that, that has that the video crew on him 24-7? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's like... I didn't know about him. I've been on his episode a couple of times. Oh, you know him because he's a wine He's maker. a wine dude. Boom. So when I'm I f- like, what? So when, like- I, when I first met him... I was on a panel at Webster Hall talking about the internet and he was doing the wine library uh-huh. and I wasn't a wine dude yet. I was just a lush, you know, but I was not a wine dude. Yeah. And, uh, I thought he was the biggest jerk in the world. He was, yeah, he's got an off putting yeah. thing to him and he knows that too, but right. I probably like him. Yeah. But at the time, <laughs> like, and then he's, he's changed a little bit. Like he was all in your face. Yeah. Now he, he recognizes that. He's also got an altruistic side yeah. now that he didn't have, you know, 20 years ago. Well, when somebody's doing like rah, 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 it's it's annoying. I, I'm aware that I'm also like since I've become much more rah, 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 I know that's annoying. But like the alternative is to not be rah, rah, rah. I mean, you can balance the rah, rah, rawness. You know what I mean? But. I, I know that that has the potential of annoying, but I also understand it has the potential to inspire, and that seems more important than being cool, for instance. Like, it's being cool is like you never are really rah, rah, rah. It's easier to be more sort of leaning towards nihilism is kind of cool. <laughs> or it was. That, I don't you mean think no, when, you're, when, you're, when you are too cool, yeah, then you're nihilistic. You're put, even further, even, even further, you like it. This is, is this all a sound check? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, we're, okay. we're rolling. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I, I turn his mic up a little I'm bit. I'm trying. <laughs> all right. You want me to talk a little bit louder? Should I no, stand we can, up? We can crank straight? you up. How's that? You turn me uh, up. Okay, oh, man, cool. that sounds good. Yeah, see? Radio. See? Yeah. Uh-huh. I just heard myself on WNYC, and boy, did I sound like I had, I had a radio voice. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah, you sound good. Yeah. So, so where? So you got the Gary V shoes? I got the Gary V shoes. These are actually my second pair that I have bought uh-huh. on release. Yeah. And what he is a master at, besides selling all kinds of shit, yeah. um, is understanding that you, there's a secondary market, and you got because he was all about rummage sales, and he's Mister eBay, like you know, garbage. 
So not that his shoes are garbage, but he knows if there's a limited edition, Mm -hmm. 500 pairs of shoes or 2,000 pairs of shoes, after release and they're sold out, the secondary market can up the, especially with sneakers, can go three, four, five times. My son, Zach, did a sneaker convention here at at City Winery called Soulpreme. Uh And it was the Supreme brand, you know? Yeah, I know. Which became, now, now Zach thinks that's too not cool anymore because well, yeah because it got popular. so cool yeah but now yeah. i i already didn't know it wasn't cool but yeah no it's not cool anymore there's all these other things palace and really you know other the the later latest skateboard gear but anyways the secondary market with that shit uh-huh. is what's really really valuable so what you hold it, like 20 pairs back is that the vibe and it's sort of like T- Ticketmaster, it's a Ticketmaster when they scalp their own tickets, right? right? They sell out, but they really have a couple thousand that they sell in their own secondary stuff yeah. for a lot more and keep the VIG. It's pretty much the same thing. Hassan Minaj did a full episode of Patriot Act on the resale market for oh, Supreme. Pa- Patriot Act? It's his, his Netflix show. He did a full episode. Hassan Minaj? I've never heard that name. It's available on YouTube. Watch it. It's all okay. about Supreme and the secondary market. It's bananas. Wow. Man, I didn't know this was going to be There's educational. So much, I mean, I should have known. <laughs> There's so much going on with the Supreme, and the, it's just. Well, we need to like start doing. Uh, by the way, support <laughs> us on Patreon. <laughs> um, but yeah, we need to start. Uh, what do you Some call shirts. it? Merchandising. Yeah. This. I like the idea though that the shoes have positive words on them because I think words are powerful. What I does mean, it wor- say? It wor- says optimism and positivity. Yeah. And he's got a he's got a brand new. Uh, it looks like he just did that with a marker. Doesn't it? I, I? I knew you'd like them. I think I wore them for you. I wasn't sure. I this do morning, like those. Gary V, good job. Yeah, yeah. And All the right. inside. Shout out Gary V. Yeah, no, I, I like what you know. Gary's got a, a new wine label called Empathy. See, now that's yeah. good too. Yeah. So he's he's tuned into the power of words. He yeah, I think he really does understand words. And when you yeah. on, on his on his vlog, you'll see. You know, like different screenshots of words. Uh-huh. And uh, here, I'm showing you the inside. So this Op- yeah, this see, show genius. says positivity, and the other shoe has the inside says optimism. See, that's great. That's really smart. And then I put my orthotic right over it, so I cover up the positivity <laughs> in the morning. So because I, I can't be too positive. I just got to have a yeah. good arch support. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's genius. I like that a lot. I've tattooed a bunch of words all over my body because... Um, that book, the secret of uh, the hidden secret of water. Have you heard of seen that book? I've, I've heard of it. You heard of it? Yeah. Like where they semi freeze water, and then like the crystals that have the bottles that say "I love you" are all beautiful and symmetrical, and the ones that say "Go fuck yourself" are like <laughs> are are like different weird, shapes, just not even symmetrical. Um, which is interesting. It is because I, I would think almost the opposite sometimes. The the non symmetrical things are the more artistic and interesting. I mean, the ones that have positive words on them, like love and peace and I like you, and you know, are just beautiful snowflakey looking things. And the other ones are just like, you know. So I was like, okay, we're made out of water. So let me just put a bunch of words all over me, you know? Yeah, but if I was to look at your artwork, I wouldn't see all that as, like, symmetrical snowflakes. I'd see them as different. No, my artwork is, yeah, I don't know, not. I think art, though, is, like, you know, a valve of of negativity a lot sometimes, you know, in a way. Or some, some kind of release of sort of 
more nefarious energy or something. I don't know. Not, it's not definitely an expression of some shit going on inside. Yeah. And probably the more negative needing to come out versus the positive. Yeah. Like, whereas music, I feel like, is more positive. Yeah. For me, this is for just for me. I mean, I'm sure it's. Do you paint, Michael? Different people. So I, I'm a very, very successful artist. Um, I've made five sculptures and all five sold. And I've made three paintings and. I bought all three. So I'm, um, I've pretty much, uh, I've, maybe it's like eight paintings. You but killed it. Uh, yeah, really. What sculpture stuff? So in, uh, I came back from Barcelona and, and Europe in 85, super inspired. And I lived with my now wife, girlfriend at the time for a few months after eight months of being away. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really, I didn't know what I wanted to do. This was pre-knitting factory. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I was thinking I was going to have a cafe. I was going to call the cafe Expressoism, mm-hmm. you know, because I, it was like this art combo thing. It was that's like a coffee of, that's shop. Kind of a good name. It, it, I liked it. It's cheeky. Yeah, it's a little. It was over to the top. It's che- a little bit, but yeah. it works. It's on the right side of the line. Like you could probably someone could make a chain with money around that. Yeah, but I, for sure. I, at the time, that was too commercial for me. I wanted to do something even weirder. But while I was still figuring it out and wanting to get laid in St. Louis with my girlfriend um, and not come to New York yet, I was looking for some money and I was building some some rock gardens for some people in this neighborhood that we mm-hmm. were living. And then I got inspired one day and I made some stick figure out of a two by four and it was just a man sitting there, but it was just out of two by fours. It cost me about $4 of three two by fours and some nails, mm-hmm. painted it white, and put it on the front lawn in St. Louis, and um, someone drove by. No, someone drove by and said, yo, that's cool, is it for sale? Wow. And I said, yeah. And they go, how much? I said, 10 bucks, and he bought it. So I was up seven bucks. So I went and I I did another one in a Uh different position. Not a guy sitting, but this guy like this. I mean, it's just, you know, really simple, super, very primitive, Mm And um, I sold that one for 50 bucks, like two hours after I made it on that's, the lawn. It was incredible. Yeah. So I did th- three more, actually. So I think it was five altogether. My mom bought the last one, uh-huh. and then I retired as a sculptor. Why? Um, you, were, you were killing it. I had to move on. You know, yeah. I moved on. Who knew there was a market for wooden sculptures in St. Louis? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a hot summer. It was a very hot summer. <laughs> How did you... So, so then you came to New York? Yeah. And you like always considered yourself a New Yorker. It's yeah. said in your bio. It's true. I yeah. I don't I mean when I was 16 in Wisconsin so like sophomore junior year of high school I just you know always had a connection to New York even though I maybe only came here once or twice to visit. Mm-hmm. Um I met a girl at Camp Interlochen in Wisconsin who was from New York and um, besides the fact that she liked me, which was rare, um, uh, I thought it was so cool that she was in, in New York and I came out to visit and, and hung out in, uh, in Greenwich village with her and, 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 um, immediately I was just like, this is it. This is this, that New York is where I want to be. So love brought you here. It was a comedy. Yeah, it was love, but it was also, I don't know, the, this weird connection to all the old Jews in New York and, and, you know, Lower East Side and the. 
this connection to Europe. I've always had a pretty deep connection to Europe. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, what do you mean? How? Well, just, I've always liked being there. Like to me, there's a comfort level of, of being in Europe, even though there's problems and I don't speak most of the languages. And whenever I try to speak a language, it doesn't work. Um, but, uh, I've, I've always liked France. I've always loved Spain and Italy. Too, and, yeah. and, um, and, you know, look, at I, I just went back to Poland with my family, uh, took my parents there, who are 84 and 81, and we went to the home of the Bengelsdorfs, the Bengelsdorfs being, you know, my family before their name was changed to Ellis Island four generations ago. And actually my brother and I both said, you know, as we were eating some like smoked salmon and 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 drinking vodka vodka you know late when i like you know what wow this is where we all this is where we came we were here for a couple hundred years that before. sounds good smoked salmon and, and vodka 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 <laughs> and uh i don't know it's just something like we felt at home yeah it's weird interesting and that was poland yeah, yeah. um anyways I, so new york has always been the place i've felt is my true place i need to be was it also the like artistic mythology of the place like were you thinking about that kind of stuff like the poets or the musicians yeah, no question that? yeah the whole jazz club thing to me was a strong draw um you know the, the kerouac kerouac for sure i've referenced him a lot but you know i i, I knew the name alan ginsburg back in college and so that was something very compelling mm -hmm. you know i i I, you know, I actually was listening to the Lounge Lizards back in Wisconsin. So like, oh, really? you know, and then saw, you know, John Lurie in the Jim Jarmusch film and, um, yeah. you know, had that kind of that, that perception, black that black and white film. And, you know, there was yeah. just something about New York just seemed super cool to me. Interesting. John yeah. Lurie. Yeah. Oh, he's a trip, man. He I is mean, a trip. I'm, I'm curious about him. Yeah. I want to see him. I, we became pretty close friends till he thought I, you know, was one of the bad people in his life. Which well, didn't, didn't he think a lot of people were the bad people? Yeah. I just don't like ever being on that side with anybody. I really, yeah. Who does? Yeah. Conflict. I just went, I just, I like to be liked, you know? And he called me, um, he said in the LA times when we had opened up Hollywood, uh, knitting factory, he goes, you know what Dorf spelled backwards is fraud. And oh, that was his quote. And I was like, oh, God, oh that's God. just like a, a knife to my heart. Why? What? I mean, I know he, like, what happened? Well. And when did the Knitting Factory Hollywood open? I didn't know that. Kn knitting Except Factory Hollywood. I think I played the Knitting Factory Hollywood. Really? Is yeah. it still open? No. No, no. no we opened in 99. Yeah. And then it was done in three years later, yeah. four years later. Um, I played there, I think, once. It was really? a really cool room. It was good. Yeah. Right? Right in West Hollywood. Yeah, um, we, um, we John, we'd worked a lot together. You know, we probably did 50 shows of the Lounge Lizards at, at the Knitting Factory. Yeah. And then we produced a big show up at Town Hall celebrating one anniversary and it didn't do well. And he thought that, you know, one, it was my fault. And then the little bit of crumbs that were left after our guarantee. Oh, he thought in you, the you ripped them off. That, yeah. And I was like, we didn't sell those last 300 tickets, which was going to be our promoter profit and our split. Right. And he just, he didn't believe that. But, mm. um, that, that's, that was a pattern apparently with a lot of people that were involved oh, yeah. with him. And, um, yeah, I've heard that. 
he's a great artist though and i really really enjoyed his company like you know he was this tall skinny dude and you know i'm the short guy and he you know for whatever reason women really were drawn to him and so Mm -hmm. i liked hanging out in a bar with him and Mm -hmm. and uh and he's funny. He's really funny and super talented, you know. And what he's yeah. doing with his artwork now too is really great. Have you seen some of his art? Oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty he's a amazing. Great artist, yeah. yeah, he's really great. His, Very good. His yeah. tweets are funny. I'm, I mean, I oh, is he on Twitter? I gotta, yeah. I'll, I'll follow yeah. him. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, he might have been narcissistically abused down the line or something, and it set him off on some kind of thing. Who knows? He he had he also he I think would pinpoint Lyme disease as a thing okay. that really adjusted his sort of you know uh personality a little bit right um his brother evan is a phenomenal piano player i didn't too. know that yeah. yeah one of the best yeah i like those movies too the jim jarmish and he he did this really fun series called fishing with john oh it, right it was great like with tom yes, waits and all these early things. podcasting in it was, a way it was even though it was televised right on comedy central or ifc yeah or something, something like, like that. that but it was uh it was, yeah, he was a he was ahead of his time with the podcast idea. Yeah, so what's he doing now? He's living somewhere in the country making art. And is he is he isolated or is he is he I think he's pretty secluded. Huh. Yeah, it's wild being an artist and the different paths you can go and how it you know how that it this certain the thing that makes somebody a genius also can I don't know. Isolate them. Mm-hmm. I think has the potential to. And even if you're interacting with people and you're busy, you might also be very in just in your own world. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I I know of certain artists in New York City that are definitely interacting and leading bands and doing stuff, but you know, they're not sharing a lot. They're kind of in their own world because I think right. they're they're really deep down dealing with some heavy shit. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that, I, I, was, I was trying to be a little at the thirty thousand foot view there without being specific. Yeah, I know. I want you to get specific, but I, I'm I can only do that really with me, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, let's do that then, because you then basically, I guess, when you moved here, then how long till you opened up the knitting factory? Well, see, yeah, I mean, so. Well, so the knitting factory was my attempt to be a little more artistic. City yeah, winery. Well, I'm definitely gravitating towards it being a business around yeah. art, you know, but the knit. But it's I, super I, supportive to musicians. We, we love art. It's business. It's a business. But, it, but it's supportive of, I mean, it's supported me for years. So, well, we. Yes. I, <laughs> I, the good, the good thing is that we love your art and, yeah. and, and the public loves your art. So, yeah. You know, but the decision making on on it isn't purely personal, um, the way the the knit was. Like so, the knit it was just it was one of those things where you know I I turned down things that were commercial because I was trying to have this extra bit of integrity about what is downtown and art. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, I there's no other place like that anymore. The knitting factory held a different space than. well, it's really hard in a world that's in Manhattan and Brooklyn, New York City, dominated by real estate and the yeah. realities. It's hard to have that balancing act. But at the time, the balance in the Lower East Side in the late '80s was, and I had no family and kids. I was like, screw it. I'm, 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 I'm 
turning down, you know, so like the Fish Boys brought me a cassette tape and I banned Fish. I turned it back to Trey and said, it sounds a little derivative of the Grateful Dead. It's not the kind of music we have at the Knitting Factory. <laughs> we're, we're a little more alternative. Right. Those were my words. Wow. And... I mean, what a schmuck I am, you know, for well, having <laughs> right on. But, but, but yeah, maybe <laughs> it's just like, no, but I was so head. I did the same thing with Harry Connick Jr. That's why I didn't know who these cats were. I was they like, all wanted to play at the Harry Connick came to New York. You know, he was doing well in New Orleans. He was not yet a movie star. He handed me a cassette tape and was like, I'd like to play, you know, your place. And I said, get back to me in a week. And I listened to it. And I'm like, oh, this is this is really inside New Orleans kind of jazz. Nah, we don't do that at the Knitting Factory. I got to make noise and, and and be really in your face. Edgy. Who Edgy. else did you turn down? Well, those are the two big ones. I bet well, you I alienated other people that I don't know. It's interesting, though, because time has a way of making people that seem, I don't know how to put this, because neither of those people, neither of those acts you mentioned are mediocre, but things that you might misinterpret as mediocre. I don't know. Time has a way of, I don't know, making art, like improving art, I find. I like, think, well, you got to persevere for sure. Yeah. And, and then you, you find your thing. I mean, I, I have a very good friend, Dan Bodner. Um, we grew up in Wisconsin together, and he moved to Amsterdam around the time. Well, he, he actually did the sweaters in the ceiling at the old knitting factory on Houston Street, and then he moved to Amsterdam. He painted a sitting man for six years. Like, he, all he did was these pictures of a guy sitting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, and he's struggling in Amsterdam like crazy. I mean, he struggled. He, he was truly, like, squatting. And I once went over and, and I bought him paint and some food so he could go another couple months. I mean, it was, it was the classic story. And here's mm -hmm. kind of a well to do family in Wisconsin but the kid, he had so much integrity and all he did was work on this this silhouette you know of a guy sitting mm -hmm. and he had a whole show in Amsterdam eventually of like 20 different guys sitting, sitting you know and I was like what the you know wow <laughs> he's now become an incredible he's like it, it took a few years the guy went from sitting to standing like after a sixth day, <laughs> and then it's like then, a metaphor for his career. And then it and it's blossomed, and now and you, it's oh the guy yeah, running. He, he's doing great. Well, now it's a whole bunch of people. Now it's a guy, he's, now he's, he's, private jet. Now it's a guy flying. <laughs> <laughs> but his, his work's really cool. It took a long time, and yeah. it, it did evolve over time. But he 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 found his voice somehow in that yeah. in that time. It took time. Yeah, will persistence. You know, like that's just a guru I follow on the Internet always talks about will persistence like. Uh, yeah, just like being water, I guess, like just never giving up. If you never give up, you know, you'll you'll get there in the end. If somehow you figure out like who you like, what you like, what you are willing to 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 pay the price mm -hmm. to to kind of get better at. Yeah. And, this is another Gary V witticism. You know, he's like, you know, man, I want to play basketball too, but no matter how many hours I practice basketball, 
And if I'm obsessed with it, yeah. as a five foot seven Jew, I'm just never gonna make the big leagues. Right. You know, even yeah. if you know I nailed my my jump shot really really good, I'm just gonna get blocked all the time. Like I just won't make it. So, right. and thank goodness I didn't have that completely wrong belief in myself that I was to be a basketball player. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a business guy doing art, right? So, yeah. um, but you got to know what you want to do and then, and then you got to commit yourself to it. And, you right. know, I lived in the knitting factory office for a couple of years of yeah, the I food town. I, I mean, I, I was, so I was living it, right? You just got to live it. You gotta, How many years did you live there? I was inside for two years. Um, I, I, uh, I sound like prison. It was great. I was inside. I was for inside two for two years. <laughs> now, in that, in in my in my incarceration, um, which, which wasn't, um, it didn't feel like I felt as free as you could be, right? I would. No, that sounds yeah, fun yeah, to me. Yeah. No, I, I, would, I, I like would, living in alternative spaces. It was cool. I've yeah. done it for. I, in fact, I just recently have a real apartment for the first time in, I don't know, fifteen years. I've lived illegally in New York forever. I mean, <laughs> I remember. I remember your van. Yeah. Your van. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but you know what's interesting about the knitting factory too? Like with like checking out the notes. Like the first one was on forty seven. Forty seven East Houston. Houston, and then the next one was on seventy four Leonard. Oh, you you saw those numbers, huh? Eleven. Yeah. Two, like, because four plus seven is eleven, and the, so it's yeah. double elevens. Oh shit! I gotta change my bank did code. You, did, <laughs> oh really? <laughs> well, especially now that you yeah, just said, said that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's wild, huh? Yeah, I I believe in a lot of those things. You know, oh, yeah. we're, we just signed I our. Gotta say, one fifty five Eric Street is also eleven. That's it, crazy. It is, and then it's with a V, right? And so you know where, so. Four, check this out. Seventy-four Leonard Street. Uh -huh. Leonard Street terminates on what street? Uh, on which side? On it ends on Varick. Wow. And Varick, there's only a couple of streets in New York that start with V. What corner are we on? Varick and Van Damme. <laughs> Whoa! And then check this. So, and where are we oh, moving shit. to? Pier fifty-seven. How old am I right now? Whoa! Isn't that weird? You're 57. <laughs> yeah. Wow, man. I'm old. I've been you look good. You know, thank you. I've yeah. been, you know, brushing my teeth and you know trying to work out. Yeah, that's interesting. So I like, I like the numerology thing too. Yeah, I I always fought it, especially in the Jewish faith. You know, they can go really deep with numerology on everything, yeah. like to the point where it's like, oh, it gets annoying. Sometimes, like if I look at a clock and it says eleven twelve, I'm like, what did I do wrong? Right. Why didn't I see it at eleven eleven? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I've turned it into a negative thing. Like if I see three three four, I'm like, damn, I'm not on point. Do you, do you ever wake up and look at your digital clock and it's the same time every morning? A weird number. Um, not I, necessarily. I've that had. Really I've had. Um. I've had a. And this. I hope someone. Do you get callers ever or send you notes after this? Because I don't want to know what this means ever, but um, I've woken up two hundred times out of the last seven hundred sleeps um, at four forty-four. Oh man! And, and I look at the clock, and I'm like, 
oh shit, it's four forty. That's so sometimes I though I I'll, think I always think that's a positive omen for all right, sure. All right, well you're half empty. Um, yeah, but I. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no I, I mean, I looked that up. Google, I Google that four four four. I know I've Googled four 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 yeah. before. Yeah, it's, mm. Does it's, mean, it's it's good. It really is a glass half. Hundred percent. All right, you've been waking up at four forty four. Yeah, like, what you, I'm not waking your, up. I'm just looking at the, at clock, the clock, and then that. I go to myself in my head. All right, it's four forty four. I'm gonna wait a minute, and then I look, and it's four forty five. So I knew it was 4.44, but I don't want to see the 4.44 again in the morning. So really? I, oh, yeah. It's like that. Yeah. And you haven't Googled 4.44 yet? No. I'm kind of nervous. That's <laughs> Man, what I'm saying. It's just going to tell you good things, like you're on the right track. I know it. It's like angel numbers and stuff like that. All right. Yeah. Maybe I'll Google it later. So, so. Speaking of Google, there are co-tenants at Pier 57. Uh-huh. What do you mean? They're, uh, oh, so at Pier f- where we're moving, well, it's more than a half. So we're taking thirty-two thousand square feet at Pier Fifty-Seven. Uh-huh. Google's taking three hundred and fifty thousand square feet. I bet you, if you looked at the exact numbers, because it's not three hundred fifty thousand, it's probably three hundred and fifty-four, four, 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 or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just looking at something like where how everything equals nine. Have you ever investigated that? Like the the power of three, six, and nine, like Nikola Tesla talked about the import if if everyone yeah. understood the importance of three six and nine like they would like know the secrets of the universe and just that's real interesting nine yeah. i mean i don't i can't speak it off the top of my right. head i can't even comprehend it really but it's crazy like every time i don't i can't even speak it because you know but everything equals nine after a while i don't know how to explain it <laughs> Speaking, it's crazy. Speaking of numbers, when <laughs> the, the the original name factory was around eighty six, when was it? Uh, so I signed a lease in eighty six. We opened in February of eighty seven. So I, I kind of know what numbers it takes to let let's say open Pier fifty seven now. Um, back in eighty six, what was your initial investment to actually open the name factory by yourself? Well, I can tell you this: the the rent. In 1986, was 1,800 bucks a month for that commercial space. We're spending 1,800 dollars every six hours, something like that. Damn. Um, on Pier 57, so that's definitely. But that's different. huge, right? It's like huge, and you know, and inflation and size and 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 time. Um, but, but like, but, it, but other than the rent, what yeah, else so did you I, put into it? So I. Um, I, you know, I, I used to say in a lot of interviews, which maybe you Your know, bar right, I use my bar mitzvah savings. And, then and I also said you also were a drug dealer, <laughs> but he's trying to do a gotcha campaign. Yeah, he's really he's he's been wanting to take over <laughs> no, since he, I hired. Since we've yeah, <laughs> no, since we've been sitting here, he walked in and stared at me for like five minutes behind you, and then he walked out. Yeah. I mean, no, he. he I mean, he it's ch- a problem. It is. It's shout it, out to Shlomo. Yeah, oh. like a, we we all love Shlomo, but he definitely. <laughs> wants my job oh my um, god he's like <laughs> <laughs> um so, I'm, I'm just glad i don't have his name but is that true <laughs> <laughs> gotcha uh, but uh so, so but is that true though did you deal drugs just weed no no um what is shlomo talking yeah about? um in college you know i might have you know uh experimented a, a little just but I, I, look at i i sold everything i could get when my parents sent me um, care packages. Mm-hmm. I sold them in in the dorms, and 
my one of the things I earned money, which sort of supplemented my my bar mitzvah savings, was I had this 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 food vending business that started so. Kind of like Gary Vee in a little bit. I, I've, there's this great, great alternative flea market between Milwaukee and Chicago where I grew up called Seven Mile Fair. And when I was 13 years old, I sold my beer can collection for like $250. And these are cans, you know, just you find. I know what a beer can collection is. All right, but... I'm from that generation. All right, so... You know, all right. we, did, like, you, did you have a beer can collection? I mean, I don't know that I ever amassed one, but, like, you know, I had a couple of those, like, Fosters and KB, you yeah. know, like, you'd see the big ones and it seemed collectible. But, but you know, you had the old, like, yeah. cone tops and stuff. There was... Some good it, ones. Yeah, and there's some cool... And, you know, when you're... 12 and 13 and yeah, it's still amazing. it's still illegal you know at the time even yeah. though at the then you had to be 18 years old to, to have your drinking age um but anyway so i sold it at this place called seven mile fair and then i convinced my dad who was in the food distribution business that i'd like to sell these cookies that came packaged three for a dollar and sell them at this market i'm like they're selling everything there they're selling you know big pens cheap and they're selling used this and you know it's it's the coolest place it's a whole economy they're selling everything so he said sure so he drove me and a friend in our station wagon because we're now only like 14 and a half years old or something Mm -hmm. to this market with 20 cases of perfectly you know made nice beautiful packaged cookies and we're trying to sell them at three for a dollar the the retail price and we're sitting on a couple boxes and about noon we hadn't sold anything. How much did you buy them for? My deal with my dad was we were going to just split the whole thing 50-50. So he... Well, you got, you got them for free? And, I, I got them on consignment them? from my dad. Oh, your dad had... Oh, my yeah. dad. My dad's in the business. Like, you know, oh, it's I like... It, it, I'm sure it cost him more and the whole schlep and the table we rented. But he was trying to teach you He's like, okay, my, my son's spirit, 14. Yeah. Right? Different than my son, Zach, who said to me... One one day when he was seven years old, Dad, I want to do a rummage sale. And I'm like, cool, let's, that's great. Next morning, we're sleeping in the apartment on Vestry Street, uh-huh. another V, by the way. Yeah. And um, we hear rustling in the morning, Sunday morning about nine. And I go to Sarah, are you gonna, what's going on? And she's like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so tired. You know, I'm like, all right, me too. Hour later, I go into the living room and I say to, to Zachary's twin brother Eli, uh, where uh, where's Zach? He's on he's on rummage sale. I'm like what? And he's like he's out front. So I go downstairs, and in the front of our apartment on Vestry Street is half of our living room um, for sale. Really? Uh, yeah. He, I said it was okay to have a rummage sale. I didn't know he was going to put all my stuff out on the street and try and sell it. So there's a. What there's, did you say to him? I said, dude, you can't sell that and this and this. You can try and sell. How old is he? Well, now he's 20. How old 20, was he then? They were seven or eight years old, something oh, like that. Okay. Really young. Really young. Really young. So he didn't understand. No, he didn't. But he oh, did okay. have this DNA instinct to sell shit, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> it, Where do you think that comes from? It's, it's from those Bengelsdorfs in Poland. I don't know. They had a schmata business, and they, they were I tailors. I like uh, I'm I'm trying to develop. I'm developing it, but... It's not innate in me, that kind of spirit, which, well, you know, I, I, I'm curious about it. There, there's, there's some entrepreneurial DNA. Yeah. I wish I had more artistic DNA, but, Yeah, you know, I wish we could, like, 
do I'll cut right. off a piece of the artistic <laughs> DNA and take yeah. some more of that entrepreneur. No, I, I love that, but it's in there yeah. and I can't help it. So I, we were trying to sell these broken cookies. Uh-huh. I'm so... Oh, I didn't I, know I, they were broken. No, they weren't. I, I just I spilled the beans you here. See, yeah, you yeah. Gave I, I the gave story. the punch, and I just see. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not good on these vlogs. <laughs> You're doing great. So um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I said. So they were broken. No, cookies. they weren't broken yet. So they were pristine, unbroken cookies. Uh, three for a dollar. Three for a dollar. <laughs> thank you very much. And at noon, I'm already picturing I thank you. Yeah, and that's what we were selling. We yeah, were like three for a dollar, three for a dollar. Do you have any now? We had a whole bunch of them, you know, like frosted and the mar- and they came. They were um, ripping goods and uh, was the name of the company. And there's like eight or nine different packages so you could mix or match three for a dollar. At noon, I put a dime in the in the phone and I call my dad, four one four three five two six six seven one, and I go. Um, that still is number. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dad. And uh, and I, I'm like, <laughs> our millions of <laughs> listeners will be have calling. To beat that out. And I, I put in another. I put in a dime, and I'm like, I'm really sorry. I didn't sell any, you know, cookies. You think you could come around three to pick us up? You know, it was really was unsuccessful. But Todd and I sat on a couple of cases, and those got crushed. Should we? What should we do with them? He goes, just. You know, if you can sell them for less, that's fine. Just I don't want to bring back to the warehouse broken cookies. And so um, I go back and I open up the boxes and they're, you know, and so I'm going five for a dollar, fresh, broken cookies. They're the same as the three for a dollar, but they're five for a dollar. Get them while they're freshly broken. Mm -hmm. And people started coming over. And next thing you know. We broke all the rest of the cookies on purpose. On purpose. My dad comes at two thirty or three and goes, "Where's all? You know, what? I thought I was schlepping all this back." And he, I go, "Dad, we sold them all." You know, and he goes, "What?" And I'm like, "Well, they 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 broke," and um, so he got it. So what? The next weekend, he gave us only broken cookies to bring out there because he ran a warehouse, right? And they had all kinds of damaged goods, you know. Mm-hmm. And it became like a four year business of hmm. selling. Broken cookies, dented tins, frozen olive oil that then re, you know, and, you know, we, we, and when I turned 16, I could drive one of those pickup trucks and the cube trucks and I was bringing all kinds of stuff out. I eventually had my cousins and everybody working for me selling this stuff. So anyways... I doubled my bar mitzvah saving investment. So it wasn't came drugs, to, it was broken it cookies. It was mostly broken cookies. So what was, uh... Shlomo. <laughs> So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is I came to New York with like no, but let's like a couple what's bucks. The, what's the moral of the broken cook? Like the moral of the story there is people if they think they're getting a deal. Well, people, yeah, they, yeah. Well, that's a, I mean that's definitely a good you know outcome of like a lesson from it, right? If people think that it's you know a, a special price. They're, they're right. into it. And you have to give them a reason as to why it's a special price that they can easily grasp. There was a unique rationale, right? These, yeah. were, these were freshly broken, yeah. right? They're the same thing. That's That was our spiel. It was like, yeah. it's the same cookie. We just broke it for you. Right. Right? You're going to yeah. break it when it goes into your mouth. So I don't know. There was just something fresh marketing at the moment. And we yeah. sold and we, we, we sold it. Um, and then it turned into a thing where you know people realize that the the quality was good it just wasn't that perfect snowflake it was the you know slightly off 
thing, and they right. they felt like it was a special, you know. And then the word got out. At, at, at towards the end of my time doing this, I, I would show up the to get the best spot at Seven Mile Ferry. You had to be there like at three in the morning. Damn. And when I was eighteen, I was partying until you know three in the morning. And so we would drive there at the end of the night, park the car, sleep for a few hours, and at at again towards the end of my time doing this there'd be the customers our best customers would be knocking on the window mm -hmm. and they would unpack the truck for us and take and put in their own boxes what they wanted and we'd you know we'd wake up and there'd be a couple hundred dollars of 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 business Sense that already. yeah and that was our alarm clock i was not getting up at 444 then that's cool though how old were you then 18 i 18. did that between like 16 and 19 and, yeah. and then when I, when I started the knit at 23 and was really getting hungry to make some money. Did you ever go to college? Yeah, I did, in between. Did you 18 graduate? to 22. I, I became a psychology and business double major. Interesting. Um, That's a good double major. Yeah, and they didn't allow it at Wash U at the time. Um, I had to be a different person in the, in the liberal arts. I was Michael Ethendorf on that transcript and in the business school I was Michael Dorf um, the business school did not allow you to to have a, a get a second degree mm -hmm. and I was like come on there's definitely a way to gain the system and I want and I'm really bored in business school my son Zach's got the same issues right now he's like they can't teach you entrepreneurship right mm -hmm. they can't teach you how to sell you know the shit that your parents send you as a care package like that you can take finance classes and accounting classes. It's and, an inspiration-based thing, I guess. And I think there's a lot of creativity because it no, is about definitely. it's about marketing and being able well, to. Like what we said about Gary V's shoes. Yeah. You know. Thinking outside the box. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I think some of it is is in, is intuitive and 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 hereditary, and then some of it. Um, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to dive in deeper. Like for me, I, how this, much of it is fear-based, like fear of survival, like survival. I think some of it, and some of it is a survival, both you know, for materialistic and the bills thing, and then there's survival of ego. You know, like mm -hmm. there's no question, the 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 coming back with City Wine. Part of that for me was like, I wanna, I wanna build a great venue. And I, I don't want to be the guy who started the knit and, you know, left and it, it never, it, you know, it's, it's got great memories in my mind and a lot of people's mind. The knitting factory? The knitting factory. You're legendary. What was the overlap between knit closing and winery opening? Wait a minute, though. I want to go with knit factory yeah, real quick I do too. first. So anyway, I, I don't feel like I finished my work in terms of what I wanted to do with that. And I had a, I got you know, com I, I mean, ultimately I left, but I was being forced out by investors. Um, it was a very challenging time. You know, I, I raised, you know, the knitting factory was a hundred percent owned by me up until for the first like eight years. And then in 1995, 96, during the dot-com buildup, I had some interns. I actually had an intern a guy named Jonathan Nelson who helped us develop our first website and then he went off to San Francisco and became our first intern turned billionaire on paper. Um, and for a couple weeks, he did really well with the company. He started called Organic. And there were then all these things during the 96, 97, 98 
that businesses that were coming out of the music world that were going crazy with with money valuation and we were experimenting a lot with Apple Music and it wasn't called Apple Music at the time it was actually just Apple Macintosh and we were webcasting we were one, the knitting factory was one of the first places webcasting you know in the world we were doing all kinds of stuff i mean you think what you're doing here with the this is in the, we were doing this stuff in a in a very primitive way getting it out there mm-hmm. and then our record label was actually growing and we were putting out a lot of stuff so i formed Do this you ever think about like if you only knew where everything was going then what you would have done to develop all that stuff <laughs> even more because i yeah, that's something yeah. i think about do you re- do you well i re- yeah sometimes I, I regret it until i start um, forward momentum in 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 this day and age now. Yeah, like I had started a podcast years ago, and it was only ten episodes. And then I like kind of didn't have the motivation to keep going. And then so for years I regretted like, oh man, I, I thought I was already past the podcast boom. Then had I only stuck with it, wow, where would I be now? Um, yeah. But then I realized then we start this podcast and it's like, you know what, we're not even past the podcast boom yet. This is just starting. So let, let's keep this focused, you know. Episode and 19, Michael so, Dorff. Yeah, this awesome. is episode 19. Oh, no. So I'm proud yeah, to be on it. Yeah, well, we're proud to have you. So, But so that's interesting. So you were saying about like, so you had a billionaire intern. And there was just all these things going How did he become on. a billionaire? Well, he took his company public, you know, and it was what just, company? it was called Organic and it was built, it was basically at the time a website building company. Oh, okay. So it was like early website. Early website. So when, so when the Knitting Factory first opened, you're 23 and, and you're thinking I'm going to be like sort of an a hip New York outsider venue, right? Right. Like, that, that, you know, I, 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 well, I had two things going on. Like I always like to double major, right? So like I had that's this, smart, I think. this, 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 and I guess city winery with a wine, winery, wine yeah. winery and you know, like it's yeah. nice to have the things and if they can intertwine even better. So I came to New York ultimately in the beginning to, I was managing a band called Swamp Thing and I was running the record company. What kind of band was that? It was an alternative rock band. Okay. The posters I was putting up all over to East Village said, if you like the Talking Heads and Elvis Costello, you'll love Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Not they, sure they, they were. sure the name, but. <laughs> you know, well, that, that was their name. Yeah. I, 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 I was the wannabe fifth member because I've yeah. never been able to. to to play guitar or sing like I, I'm a terrible terrible musician which is well, why if you I keep always, saying that the words have power you'll always be that that's you, that's it, fine <laughs> I, I know my place on this one right. and and my and my and my friends who were in the band were you know childhood friends and naturally gifted great artists and uh-huh. so but I wanted to be in the band because they were so cool and they were getting laid and and you know mm-hmm. I I wanted that so it's band no, no, this okay. is pre-Greer. Um, yeah, which is hard. Uh, it's really like so historic. It's pre-Greer. And, um, you know, they were banned from Who's Milwaukee. Ed Greer is, he was my like, first real number one employee at the, at the knitting factory and was there the whole time. And then when I, in, in my wandering the desert from 2004 to 2008 before starting this, he too was out there as sort of freelance producer, and then when I opened up this place, he was my first hire. Um, oh. So he was always the the guy who it's like a right hand right hand guy, thing, like sh- the the first Shlomo. Yeah, it's a, he. But so you met him. He played in a band. He was in a band called Miracle Room 
that we ended up signing to the the, the like knitting factory. Name. Yeah, Miracle Room's a good. You would have loved that's Miracle Room. Yeah, yeah they're they're definitely at more your musical style. Than, mm-hmm. But you'd like Swamp Thing too. They were really fun. I'm sure. And um, so, anyways, I had a record label with them. And we put out about six or seven. And that was called records. Swamp Thing it's, Records. It's called Flaming Pie Records. Oh, Flaming Pie. Okay. Um, which. The name all came from the band. I just got involved in it, and I became the money guy and ran it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and was running Nat from the back office at the Knitting Factory and then putting on the shows and starting to be this, you know, this what was going to be Expressoism turned Knitting Factory as a, as a coffee shop meets, you know, music venue. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a coffee shop as well. I tr- well, it was... I, all we had, the only license we had to sell anything was coffee and muffins. You oh, know, so the there beginning. was no booze at the first knitting factory? For the first three months, I Did didn't... Did you sell muffins? Sold muffins, yeah. And I sold, again, and, my, and actually my parents sent me more than just normal the college coffee, uh, you know, uh, packages. You broken cookies, they, too? No, they sent me, all, they, my dad would be, you know, fill up a couple cases of stuff uh-huh. and send it to me, and I'd sell it all. Oh, uh, corn nuts. He would send me cases of corn nuts because the first marketing of the food we had at the knitting factory was a Wisconsin-esque type of cuisine. So we had cheese sandwiches and corn nuts mm-hmm. um, <laughs> for two months From and muffins. Wisconsin. From Wisconsin. No, if you if you Google if you Google knitting factory 1997 <laughs> and you read the caption in the New Yorker yeah. for about. 18 months in a row, you know, they had the same little thing about us. It was like a Wisconsin-esque cafe. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird. Anyway, so within two months, we were able to get our wine and beer license. And then New York City only allows one full liquor license at the same address in the city. And so below us was Estella's Cafe. It was a Peruvian restaurant. And I had to buy her out in order to get a hard liquor license a couple of years after. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then the day we sign a deal with her, Zorn comes in and we set up Naked jo- City. John, John Zorn. Zorn. We set up to do the world premiere of a week of Naked City inside the restaurant space. Yeah. Which for John, he loved like just taking over. A, improvisational jazz like John Zorn. N- well, it wasn't improvisational. This is, this is, this is a great. I mean, Zorn. You know, he's he's another one of these incredible geniuses, right? right. And he was going to go on tour to Europe with a pretty extensive tour. And, he, and the band is Bill Frizzell and Fred Frith and Wayne Horvitz and Joey Barron on drums. So an incredible band. And they were getting really popular on one release on Nonsuch. And he had written about 100 songs. So Zorn. Zorn. Yeah. Now, Naked City's songs went from... 30 seconds long to, you know, maybe th- 10 minutes. So, mm-hmm. but a lot of short and the music was, you know, Western country to jazz to rock, like hard, you know, and he would have, um, you know, some hardcore guest singers sometimes. I mean, all over the place, but it was start and stop intense, not improv at all. It was highly, highly composed, intense music. And he had written a hundred songs and every day he'd come in and he'd give, put out 20 songs of sheet music and and you know bill frizzell such a, you know, also a genius could learn you know the songs that he did rehearsals for about three hours then we played live you know to the public coming into this place that we just took over their liquor license 
to about 100 people and scattered seats and, and John set up in the middle of the room, would do the 20 songs they learned. Next morning, Same he, thing. 20 new songs. So at the end of five days, 100 songs. Yeah. And these guys nailed it. They went on tour. And then John, from the stage, could then change his set list up throughout the European tour. But, I mean, that's the way John rolls. He did that with Masada then, mm-hmm. his next band. And he, John must be up to 1,000 songs now. And he just... You know the artistry is so intense, and 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 but it's so much is composed. It's it's remarkable. What do you think was inspiring you, or what what drew you to that kind of music, as opposed to like being Gonzo over yeah. Fish, um, and Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, yeah. There was like why why yeah, did you like yeah. the sort of more outsider? I don't know. Challenging, I, I, yeah, because that's unusual for somebody who's. Not a musician, I guess. And also somebody who's interested in having successful businesses that doesn't seem like at least right off the top, like a total congruent. No, Joseph, you're you're getting to the challenges of certainly where my head was at because they're yeah. i they they were they're diametrically opposed. Right? They are a little bit opposed. Well, they turns out they're not, but that's that's what's interesting. When you follow your instincts, even if they are peculiar instincts, that's a good thing to do. True. Even if it's like, like it seems like sort of conceptually like, you know, like not the safe thing to do. The safe thing is book Harry Connick Jr. and Fish. No offense to Harry Connick Jr. and Fish, by the way. I know they're getting... And they're great. Yeah, they're they're very much, they are great. yeah. Yeah. But at the time, I was trying to be super alternative. Yeah. And, and was trying... What, what year was this? 80, 87, 80. 88, 89. Like so those, this is like, yeah. But it wasn't mostly jazz at the minute? No, we had Sonic Youth. We yeah. did Beck's yeah. first performance. Lou Reed I, Lou, was big on the Knitting So Lou, Lou started to come when we opened up on Leonard Street. Right. Like, um, but How did that you know, happen? Hal Wilner, uh, who really loved our eccentric stuff that we were doing downtown, mm-hmm. um, was was doing some production stuff with Lou, and 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 I was uh, I was Hal's Hal's buddy um, when he when he was having his drug issues. I I helped. Um, actually, I didn't help. I was the only guy who was giving him some cash at the end when when people were trying to cut him off because he he needed real help and in so the you, end you enabled him i enabled him and i didn't know what was right but when when someone's looking at you in the eye like that it was and and someone who i respected and who seemed to be really together i i i couldn't say no right um and you know and i wonder if i would now to where you started this whole thing was like if i had the head where i am today would I have had the maturity to, would I still have the strength to say no to, to him, even though that's probably the right thing to do? Was he like um, a mentor kind of to you? Or? You know, Hal, in a certain way, he was putting out those collaborative uh, uh, compilation records that were so out there, but they were getting so much critical acclaim, like the Disney, oddly enough, um, compilation where he would have Lou Reed and, and Laurie Anderson and, you know, real avant-garde players, like, take stuff out and... In, in the most most um, professional, high-level way. Yeah. Um, in fact, the whole you know tribute series I do at Carnegie, right. he was doing before me, yeah. um, but eccentric artists. Right. Like, I went for pop, 
around yeah. that. And he, he, he so I did I, one with him for yeah. Doc Palmas. Exactly. Actually, actually, Lou Reed was on that yeah. one too. So, he, yeah. so, so Hal I sang Viva Las Vegas. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, see, to me, yeah. that, that's well, how holds a very special place in terms of his, you know, relationship with culture in general. It's just so unique. And, and so like, I don't know how to even put yeah. it into words, but it's, it's important. It, it feels important. He's got one of the most interesting outlooks and take like to, to, to walk through an art museum or something with him would be phenomenal. Right. Cause yeah, he be. just, he, the connections he would make. Well, just being with him is like walking through an art museum. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> His mind is an art museum. Yeah. There's so where the three stooges hang out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> That's a really good one. That's a perfect description. That's so him. Shout out Hal. Yeah. I love Hal. Um yeah, so me too. uh he Hal you know, did us the biggest salad. He knew how much I revered Lou. Lou. And when we're talking about what represented New York to me, like yeah. You know, yeah, that, Lou. Lou, right? I mean, <laughs> I like, mean, to e- almost to everybody, right. but yeah, uh, like, Lou, yeah, right? Lou. It was like, oh my god, like the Velvet Underground, and yeah. then the, the connection to, no, it's, it's, well, you want to know another? It was and Andy Warhol, yeah, and then the factory closed the same week the Knitting Factory opened. That's crazy. Uh, so, did you meet Andy? No, no, yeah. no. But um, but that was one of the things. Like to me, when we talk about that Kerouac jazzy thing of New York, to me, Lou Reed and Andy and all that was part of this thing that was like, whoa, I got, I want to, I want to come to that. Yeah. So when and then Lou, Sonic Youth as well. Sonic Youth was Lowry, part of it, yeah. Even though younger, younger people, but yeah. Kind but of. so so when the chance to to program, I was all over the place, and I really liked the jazz thing that was going on in Brooklyn, which was. Cassandra Wilson and Greg Osby and Steve Coleman, they had this really cool scene going on. And then the old jazz cats like Cecil Taylor and mm-hmm. Henry Threadgill. Ornette that, Coleman. Ornette Coleman. I got they, to meet him. They weren't playing at the the conservative jazz clubs, right? They weren't getting Oh, they weren't getting they booked. Weren't getting booked. Like they weren't getting booked. Like at Blue Note. The Blue thing. Note and the Vanguard even. I saw Jimmy Scott with Lou at Blue Note. But that was later. Yeah, that was later, probably like yeah, yeah. two thousand. Yeah. yeah, but uh, in '89, you know, they weren't programming anything that was even remotely avant-garde jazz. So I did. I started to get very involved in the jazz scene because I I was able to be the left of center jazz dude, and then you had uptown going, you know, in all the clubs doing the you know right of center, and it was a great place to be. And then the because yeah, you had your lane. We had we, we, and it was a wide open lane, you know, and nobody else was really there. And Hal was defining that in a certain way because it was it was almost anything goes, right? It you you could have country music on the same stage as punk, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it, there's there's a way that 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 Bill Graham kind of put it together. Anything yeah. goes. So I love that. So I love that lane is wide open right now. I would think, well, it's, is anybody I, doing it now? Well, like I, if I th- somebody opened up knitting factory now, I think now. And well, I'd like to think that city winery is kind of winery a, is though it feels more mainstream. And I don't mean that in the disparaging way in nope. any way, shape or form. I mean, I feel like I fit into the yeah. city winery, so I'm not disparaging 
people that fit into the city right. I just think it's you know? <laughs> it's it's knitting factory for a little older you know right. audience yeah but and like it, we're talking that that su- super left of center thing it just sounds chaotic what you had back then in a good way it was well, that but you know that's for whatever reason what my mind in my head and then I think my friends and then the expanded circles around them and then their circles wanted like a place where you'd stand and you, it was okay to be crammed in there mm-hmm. and it was okay to maybe have your mind a little more altered and shaken up and stirred. What do you mean and, altered? Well, and it could be <laughs> in, it could be in any, any, any way you want to alter right, it. It could yeah. be just knocking your head against the wall, Yeah, but you know, you were open to almost anything goes and yeah. later hours and, and, and maybe a little less sense of responsibility to, to get up and whatever. I don't know, but that it seemed perfectly suitable for, for me in the eighties. That's what I wanted. Yeah. And, and you know, today, what was, what was your capacity at, at the Leonard street location? Well, legal capacity was, um, less than we had there well there was a couple rooms there yeah. there was a basement down there and like then there was the main room when right lou, when lou played that's what I'm so lou, like yeah. what room would he play so well lou room. played the big room Which on leonard street on right leonard street, and yeah. and that we had a capacity of 199 legally really um and he yeah was still lou back then, oh he was, so was oh packed. he was lou it was when we would do runs we'd do three night runs and be packed and you know those were the most crowded we get the 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 fire department came the first time we did Lou, yeah. the fire department showed up and... Oh, it's Lou, it's fine. No, well, no, actually, he goes, this, pretty much, but they, the, the chief comes in and goes, um, who, who's, who's that on saxophone? And I go, that's David Sanborn. And he goes, just a second. And, and, he go, and he literally goes... And he Googled it? No, 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 there was no, no Google. Google. No, but he went, no, he went on the walkie-talkie to the, to, the tr- to the truck outside and said, Sam Bourne's on saxophone. And he goes to me, you're going to need to make room for eight people, so we're going to need to get ten people out. You know, and what we had is these doors that led from the main room into the front bar. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember Leonard Street on the ground floor. So we opened those doors and, and we let people filter out. And then eight firemen came in in full regalia and to the listen? oxen to listen. They stayed for the show. That's incredible. They kept us safe. That, but, uh, yeah. that, it's just uh, totally unrelated. I love when, New York. When Metallica, yeah. <laughs> when Metallica played the Bowery Ballroom. The fire department, the police, they all showed up to inspect the room and stayed for the show. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a little safer. Yeah. And, you know, you know, they have these rules in New York where you can go without an occupancy permit as long as you get certified fire guards. Oh. And there are there are, there actually is something behind all that. But there's there are also humans who love great art too you know you just don't always look at them that way speaking of metallica and lou reed right again (laughs) like what did you think of that last uh, did you hear the last yeah what'd you think well so uh, anything lou does i'm gonna give respect and you know when he made his noise record yeah yeah. i'm not the biggest metallica fan you know like that's not what i'm listening to at home and i probably won't do a metallica tribute at carnegie hall like i and maybe I should, and you know, I wish I would definitely. I would, I would want to play that. See, I wish I could think more out of the box and like that. Now I'm doing, you know, like so the jo- Joni Mitchell's, Slayers right? On their last like, tour, do a Slayer one. I know, but uh, um, 
anyways, I thought it was really cool and yeah. totally out of the box and totally underrated, like a hundred percent. It's a, it's a shame that that was the last record. I mean, a shame that that was the last record he put out because of the reception that it got, which was over the top harsh. Yeah. So he went out on an over the top harsh reception, and I know he thought that record was great. Like he said that to me that it was one of the best things he's ever made. And when I listen to it, it's like lyrically, it's just again, it's it's like gonna become totally reinterpreted, you know, ten ten years later. Like lyrically, it's just uh, like unbelievably great and and challenging and fucked up in the most like Lou like amazing way, you know. But it, I don't think the negative press criticism bothered him. I bet it did. I mean, every artist is like, you know, no matter how cool and big, bad, wolfy artists can be, we, you know, every artist wants people to say, for you're a jolly good fellow, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but I think it's basic. I think he was at a point where, I don't know, not that he was immune to harsh, you know, That was a criticism, pretty harsh reception. But I think he, 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 he knew it was really good. And yeah. I think he had a longer view on shit. And, That's true. And I think he was all right. Did you get I, on with him? Yeah, we had a great relationship. We had this also this unique. Sarah thought that he had a crush on me for a little bit, and it wasn't that. Um, it was we had a unique relationship because we started to to become close. Not, we liked we drank wine together mm-hmm. when we were doing the shows. We would. After the shows, we went to Montrachet a couple times with the band, and we connected around this one particular vineyard in the Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lori and I were friends before that, so there was always this connection with, with both of them. But um, uh, we got along talking about Judaism. In a, and, and, you know, he wasn't a religious guy, but he knew he was Jewish, mm-hmm. and, and his parents, for sure. But, like, there was something unresolved in his, like, Buddhist kind of you know spiritual self that he was he was always still intrigued with and and so he would ask questions he came to four or five of our Passover seders like what kind of questions they weren't like Rabbi Dorf um, uh, could you tell me about this or that it was more like um, why are all these people still attending you know this this feast of freedom around the story of slavery you know Three thousand years later, at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, you know, and 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 isn't it weird how this 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 you know scene in New York and and he was he had a connection with John Zorn on this too and a few other musicians where it was like, what is it what is it about the Jewish people that makes you remember and explore and and be willing to question status quo whatever those I think he. They were, they were like who, who he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was maybe less religious and more about, I know I come from this. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, what is, what is it about this DNA pattern that, that has helped, has made me who I am? And what would you say? I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I, I, I certainly think there's, there's a history of study and, and learning and family, mm-hmm. um, but I think those are very universal things now. Like I, I certainly think in 1720, you know, there was maybe some value to keeping kosher, for example, because it was health related and 
and and a way to pass certain things on. I don't know how much of that is is translatable to today or re- as as relevant. I think um, we've adopted a lot of great things of of other face. I think there's been a lot more melting. I think the melting pot the melting can pot. be really good. Like thank goodness us in Western civilization learned a lot about cleanliness from the Japanese culture, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be doing hot tubs and smelling as good. Yeah. I was, I was reading this book, uh, the renegade history of the U S you ever read that? Mm-mm. It's so interesting. Cause it's just like, man, this place has been a madhouse the whole time. Like when, you know, like, you know, just like people used to be, just get, wasted all the time and prostitution all over the place and everything like it's been it was mental like with the founding fathers like you just don't think of it like that yeah. you think of it like as more conservative it was mental like <laughs> like uh so i think like it's interesting when people panic now like oh my god we've never been here before and it's like man relax this has been a madhouse for quite a long time well, yeah imagine only 70 years ago whenever when 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 did prohibition take place i think that's like 80 years or it's, yeah. it's gonna have its hundredth yeah it's a hundred it's gonna be a hundred years next year yeah prohibition wow we were so out of control in this country that yeah. they had to create these laws you couldn't drink alcohol i know it's like yeah with it, like in this book it talks about the fact that it was like the you know everybody was drinking like at least like seven whiskeys a day type of thing like it was like nuts <laughs> yeah like that was common i mean know? that's mind-boggling to me Fun right times. yeah yeah so when you just so what happens so you lose the knitting factory because of what so i diluted myself out so you know in uh we became you sold shares we be, or yeah we became or? knit media Right. So I, I, I was a 100 percent owner and then I started taking on investment because I saw, again, my peers were starting to do really, really Make well. Bill, billions. And you were like, and going, well, I'm doing interesting stuff. I'll, I'll figure out a way to, you know, like push it. And um, so I did four rounds of 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 investment. The last couple of rounds were classic vulture capital. Um, some people call it venture capital, but, um, you know, the vulture capitalists come in and they, they see a hungry guy and, and naive and figure out terms that basically can control the company. So on, oh, so on they, paper, I uh, thought I was doing okay, good, good but you not have yeah. a lawyer back then? I had a lawyer, but you know, you don't always listen to your lawyer and when sometimes you're lawyers young. give you bad advice. Yeah. It depends on if you have the right lawyer. This one, I would blame me, not the lawyer. You know, okay, so you got kind of like it got okay, bought out from under you, well, sort of. Well, also, I, or it I, became no fun anymore I, because you didn't control it. I also don't think I was I was looking at everything correctly. Like I, I don't think I was respecting the music. I'm happy of what happened. Like I, I, I was calling music content for about two or three years. Like it, it was content. Content Wait, for who? For the public. You know, it wasn't supporting musicians to create art to get to the fans mm-hmm. you know you know i i knew it in the beginning but i lost my way i would say and That's interesting and, and i feel like i'm back calling, saying calling it content is negative because i everything is referred to as content now 
I think like this, what we're making here is referred to as content, which I think is probably like an alarm bell that you're kind of aware that calling something content is in a way devaluing. I don't know if it's devalue. It's just it it becomes this asset and a widget and and art and what we do in the human interaction is is not right. So if all of a sudden you're just cranking the stuff out and you get to episode 275 or I think Gary V's on episode 490 and if and you if you forget what you're doing and it's just I'm cranking the stuff I got five shows I gotta crank out today for deadline because that's how he is about it well because I have the deadlines and I have to edit these things but when we do it it's all about the now well it's being here now I'm only teasing I know know, but I am it's like he is is the pragmatic one well you need the pragmatism but also it's about it's about making sure you're remembering what you're doing and what you're doing and why you're doing 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 it well Joe always tells me don't operate out of fear out of like, okay, I know I need this and that's going to yeah. affect how I'm going to do things. If you operate out of fear, it's always a mistake. Yeah. Or you're always, you, you always end up creating what you're afraid of or I generally. can see that. I mean, you know, again, I think there's a, for me, there's a fear of failure in yeah. general. And so that was partly a motivator of. of yeah, that can be good. Yeah. The fear of failure, you know, it gets you out of bed. Let me do that run. Let me yeah. Make, you know. Yeah. Like a little of that, I think, is okay. Obviously, like, you know, you know, but in balance. Would you consider the Knitting Factory experience a failure in the end? Or oh, not? no, absolutely no not. No, no, no. no. It's I, legendary. I, I, but I, but I, and it led to this. Right. I relish every moment of it. I made mistakes. And again, even, even this whole thing where I know I went overboard with, with what we were doing in media. I mean, we had a TV series on BET. We had 340 records out on the Knitting Factory label and publishing with a hundred artists, so thousands of songs that were, you know, we were doing, and then all the stuff we were experimenting on the internet, which was really cool stuff, but I went overboard with that for a bit. And when I started this place, I actually made a really, really conscious decision. I mean, one, I let Ehud, like, I've been, you know, like, let seller sessions happen. and like we're, That's we're, amazing, right? the seller sessions. Right. It's like really that, cool. That's fucking amazing. And, and, and that's an archive. And that they gave will, me freedom, full freedom. Yeah. There was no limitation. Yeah. But I didn't want to own IP. So w- the most important thing when coming into, except for you the... You mean own IP? I didn't want to know, own other, or share, be in business where I'm like owning other people's intellectual property rights. Okay, like, intellectual property yeah. rights. Okay. I, I really wanted to be able to you know see you Mm-hmm. And I can give you a bear hug, or yeah. you give me a bear. Or we both give. Usually, you're giving me up because mm-hmm. you're bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And um, and don't you forget? And I will not forget that. <laughs> and, but like, and and I know that it's like it's 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 it's. I hope it's real. It's not superficial. And we've broken bread. And like my relationship with artists right now is yeah. is I love that. Like I to me that there's nothing more valuable. Frankly, I'm glad. You know, I, I wouldn't trade more success at the expense of having a worse relationship with, with the talent. I love seeing the artists and knowing that they're not looking at me going, do, do, do I, am I owed some money on that third record? That's I put so interesting out, you know, it like, is, it is like as an artist, it, everybody who plays here knows this is true too. That it's like you get taken care of, you get fed, 
like a nice meal like you know you know at those times when you're not on the wagon you can have as much wine as you want <laughs> i mean it's a great it's a great thing and it's unusual to be treated that well i mean there's other places that treat artists well yeah. but this place is definitely a bread and butter maker for a lot of you know mid-level to upper level to like even yeah. lower level artists you know like so it's like and, we yeah. and that and that was the role i wanted to be i Which wanted is, to be a home and i wonder like home. how much that john lurie like quip that negative uh blast how much that actually in the end, those those negative jolts I find can be super inspiring and oh, yeah. super like to the fact that you've converted that, whether that had anything to do with it or not, into into literally like thousands of artists would probably say this is a great thing, I, and I, I feel completely taken care of. So it, I, the you, relationship you, you, you've nailed it. No, I think, and you know, part of what I try and articulate in my new book coming out, okay, is, yeah, let's promote the book. <laughs> but is is just that, like the lessons I was I got from the scene around the knit. And again, my overdose, I think, on on trying to be a content creator yeah. and forgetting that, you know, we're all about um, the artistry and we're all about we're the medium between the fan and their yeah. and their and their favorite musician. Yeah. And our role is to create as great a place as possible. Right. Yeah. So what, when we want to go overboard to put out food and booze and whatever it is to, and have a party around the arts, we know that hopefully that's enhancing the the artist's vibe that night and in turn if we're doing the same thing to the consumer yeah. and, and giving them good service and hopefully fair pricing and mm -hmm. quality food and serving wine in a glass and a seat not standing and the air conditioning is working and everything's working then that interplay between the artist and the fan is even better yeah and then if it's all working really great we're creating this magic right, right. and that that that's that's my job yeah. My job is to create that magic, and that can't be perfectly. It can't be replicated in any video format, any media. Like you can, you can show it, but it's not the same as being there. And so I said, "Fuck it, I'm just going to go all in on the on the momentary thing, and the idea of capturing that in some form of medium. Yeah. I'm going to let other people do that." Yeah, that's cool. Well, that's also interesting too, because it's like, uh, like uh, again, on the surface not necessarily the smartest like just surface level business plan like oh save money give the band the shitty menu <laughs> like you know like only two beers you know, two beer minimum you know that kind yeah. of thing like but yeah just when you yeah it creates an environment of stinginess then and then like the yeah it just bleeds feel, into like the everything whole thing, the whole thing like about yeah. even a bouncer in the front or whatever it is like the, yeah. the your reaction the, the, t the service fees on tickets. I mean, why did we go nuts on like creating our own ticketing, you know, software? We're not a technology company, but we mm -hmm. we didn't want to have those ticket fees of all the big companies because yeah. and that's the first interaction. They love Joseph Arthur, and then it's like it's eighteen dollar ticket. That's fair, but nine dollar service fee, and then all of a mm -hmm. sudden there's hostility. Like yeah. you haven't even talked to them. I haven't even done my job, and Ticketmaster, whoever it might be, is already mm -hmm. creating this hostile relationship. Like I wanted to try and remove as much of that as possible. Is that going to continue in the new location? Absolutely. We're going to keep, you know, pushing. And trust me, I've got an offer on the table for a lot of money to, like, take over our ticketing. We're doing 500,000 tickets a year right now between That's all incredible. our locations. 
And uh, so, yeah. There How many locations are there now? Well, believe it or not, we're in seven cities, but we have 11 locations because we have, we just are opening tomorrow morning, Rockefeller Center, uh, an outdoor uh, like city vineyard type of thing. I saw a tweet or an Instagram was like, why is, why is city winery up here? We can't tell you, but we will later. <laughs> yes, I don't know. That, that wasn't my tweet, but we're trying to be clever. Right. About no, I right didn't mean, I didn't mean yeah. to make fun. Yeah. That wasn't making fun, but just like, uh, is that what it is? Yeah, we're doing, we've got a couple of those. We've got like little like sort of pop-up venues. Yeah, there's some thing? pop-ups where we can sell more wine. Um, we're going to do a music lounge with uh j and r music downtown at park row that's uh, cool. which is kind of cool beautiful you know j and r music stopped selling as a company a few years ago but over the 40 something years that they were in new york as sort of the premier computer slash stereo slash record store um they accumulated all the real estate on that block of park row between broadway and and beekman uh-huh. and so um they're developing all the buildings and probably making a hundred times more money than they've ever made, you know, as real estate, but they wanted to preserve J and R music and the legacy of what went on there. So we're creating a music small lounge, about 150 capacity room should open in November and it'll be uh, you know, J and R music lounge by city winery, the first kind of ever something like that. So we're doing that now too. And, um, we're doing this upstate project. I think I might have mentioned uh, City Winery, upstate. City Winery, Hudson Valley. That's great. Yeah, I, I actually up there. I found a knitting factory. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We bought a 22 acre, 150 year old knitting factory. Um, a remarkable. Legit, a legit. legit. It's got all the spinning yarn things, and when we 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 bought it about a year ago, we've been working on. We took a, almost a whole year just to get the zoning changed so we could turn it in to a winery and then an event space mm-hmm. and there's a cool outdoor amphitheater we're putting in it's it's going to be really cool when that's we launch great. it this fall yeah but that's where we're moving all our wine making operations right now since we're out of this building in two weeks oh i see yeah by the time this airs there will be no more city winery on varick on varick street yeah we're we're going to be can, spread out can you go into details uh, there's a lot of speculations and stories as to why you ended up uh, moving out of here early and everything that went down with with Disney to set the record straight. Sure, we'll make this program where we set the record straight. But hopefully, Supreme Court of New York will set it straight. But so, yeah, because you just built this yeah, room we're so in right where now. we like are. We're, the, yeah. this is the loft we're in right, right. now. Right, which is a really cool, it's a beautiful room. room. I would love to play here. Yeah. I never have. Well, we're we're building a, a new loft in a new location too. So mm-hmm. you know, one of the things. The great news of us moving, not, and I'll get to the meat in a second of your question, but are you bummed? That, were you bummed about it? Well, at first, probably. But. No, I re- really not. You know, since we've built all these other city wineries now, you and, just knew and you could do it we, we knew we could, one, well, there's so many improvements to everything we did after New York, mm-hmm. including having a room like this and a bunch of our other markets and right. having a kitchen and closer to the where people are eating and a front door when you don't walk into a show and disturb it right like you walk into more of a lobby so all of our other locations are much much smarter design Uh and so i've been excited to move and and really take that 10 years of experience and move it into a new location for sure so that that part i'm not i'm not crying at all about i am pissed off at trinity church because they screwed us on this space that we're in right now so 
we've had a we've been in careful yeah I'm, that's jesus people no man that's okay you know and i'll, I'll he's a jew yeah, i'm just kidding yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah. um this is oh, like, man. There's, there's only a few <laughs> this battle is three thousand years old yeah, I, yeah, oh yeah we've been we've been going at this for a while but um <laughs> so that's i funny. i've had a good relationship with trinity church from the time we signed our lease and when we signed the lease 11 years ago, there was a demolition clause in there that said in any time one year advance notice, they can tell us with certain other buildings coming down in, uh, next to us, but that they can demo the block. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, in exchange for having that demolition clause in, we got we had a fair market value on the property. And Does we that were mean uh, after two years, they could have given you a year notice and you would have been done. Yeah. Yeah. So 10 years went by, no demolition clause, good relationship with church. We actually made sacramental wine six years ago with the rector and, Mm -hmm. you know, that was cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we had a good relationship. Then about a year and a half ago, my buddy says, hey, do you want the second floor? It's becoming available. We'll we'll do a five-year lease extension to downstairs and give you the upstairs. And I'm like, well, what about the demolition clause? He goes, eh, it's the same thing. I mean, the, the, the likelihood is very low that we're going to demo. Um, but at a minimum, we'll give you three years, you know, orally. But the, the, the template, the contract, all our leases throughout all the Hudson, all the, uh, the Hudson Square properties, all their, their buildings have a one-year demolition clause. Yeah. It's just standard protocol. It's part of the lease. And I'm like... All right, so you're saying three years. And then so then I'm doing calculations and go, well, it's going to take us about $2 million. But real quick, one-year demolition clause, that means that if they, they, that means they give you one-year warning. One-year notice, get, and then out. they're going to demolition the building. Okay. Right. All right. So, I know you, you know, already said that, but I just but But no, let's be clear. That. It's yeah. one-year notice. Okay. And so, you know, buyer beware, right? Right. So we sign a new five-year lease. That's heady, man. When, like... Especially like, okay, you're like, you just said like, okay, yeah, we've done this all over the country. We know how to do this. This is cool. But like for a young upstart, like, you know, that that's just a heady thing. It's just, it's already so risky opening up a business of any sort. Like and then that. they have this. And so then yeah. to have that also hanging over, that's like. Well, the good news is we just signed this 25 year lease and, at the pier uh-huh. and there's no demolition clause. So, I that's mean, that's, that's, that's good. But yeah. this went into it had the clause but here's a guy who i've formed a relationship with for 10 years Mm -hmm. he's from the church right Mm -hmm. and when you talk to a guy from the church usually you would think they're going to be honest Mm -hmm. right and a mensch and and above board he Um, already knew about the disney thing and they must have known and you know yeah and so they sign a new five-year deal and in the lease terms it said there's a one-year demo but the first two million dollars that was going to come in, in terms of a payment for rent, we get to keep to cover the cost of our renovation. And we have emails that go, "It's going to take us three years to get those couple million dollars back." So we mm-hmm. have in writing my saying, "It's going to take us three years minimally." We need, and it says, "Hey, hey, John, we need, we need three years. Are we going to for sure have three years?" And he's like, "Yeah, you're going to for sure have three years. No problem. You probably have all five years, just like you had all ten. Yeah, you know, but." It's but but don't worry about the demo clause. Boom, we start construction. 
We even we're yeah. Gonna, this barely was built before you, that announced. Word boom, already got so, out because I remember Shlomo brought me up here to see it. it yeah, was, it still smelled like new construction. The next thing I know, boom, we're out of here. Disney's so buying this place. So how far into place. construction did they tell you? So we en- we ended up getting. We've probably had an operating year instead of three. Mm-hmm. So you know we're, we're probably like one point eight million dollars or whatever in the hole on on the second floor. Disney is not the bad guy here at all. Disney, mm-hmm. you know, got a 99-year lease from Trinity Church. Trinity Church didn't say, hey, we screwed over this one tenant, by the way. And, you know, they just said, you know, you're getting all of these buildings, this entire square city block for 99 years. Thank you, you know, $650 million bucks for it. Damn. And um, What's Disney going to do with this? So this is going to become the new... Uh, east coast headquarters and all those like the a- oh, okay. abc studios and espn and all of those things will be taking place here wow yeah but so were you not originally supposed to get till january 1st 2020 so the original conversations with trinity when they initially broke the news was listen you're going to get the demo clause soon but and we're going to get you to january which was really about 18 months mm-hmm. from the time they said that and so you know, start looking fast, you know, and 18 months, you know, we're probably going to hit the 18 months from the time they mentioned it. Um, I looked at a hundred places right away, you know, really went all over looking and, and, uh, you know, feel very blessed to have found a spot that we are. It's a lot of money, but it's a great spot, but we could have used the extra time. Are you going to get like, are you guys, is there a legal battle or anything? about? Yeah. So, you know, again, Disney did, did actually the right thing, right? They, for sure need to build this project here. And we're the only tenant that had this particular issue with Trinity Church. So they said, listen, we don't want you to get involved, you know, in a protracted lawsuit problem because we need you out of here. If you sign a document with us, it says for sure you're going to be done on August 1st, 2019. We're going to give you some money. Right. And I, so that was very That's nothing for them, but that's like, a, but it's, yeah, it was the right. They needed to the do right it. They didn't. Cause if we were a holdover tenant, even yeah. for three or four months that to, to slow up, up, this is going to be a $2 billion yeah. building at the yeah, yeah. right. That would be bad. So Trinity gave us a little bit of a couple shekels, but it certainly doesn't make up for what we need. And, and I've got five months of payroll with a lot of people that, right, right. you know, need work. So it's not just a loss. So now. it's all kind of good so, in a way. I'm trying to look at this one very much as a half glass full. It seems like a good thing. Is yeah. the the new space is going to be better? It's going to be so cool. It's right a great on. space. Not a single column in anyone's view. There you go. So what's tell me about your book? So the book is is an attempt to synthesize some of the lessons and mistakes and many mistakes of of What's it called? It's called Indulge Your Senses uh, uh, scaling intimacy in a digital world. And basically, where I was going before was this is like that's the theme of this podcast, like because you you like you like the the digital world was like sort of your dark side with the knit in a way, yeah. And then scaling scaling back to intimacy has been your saving grace. That is the premise, and that's if you will my thesis from a business operating standpoint is yeah. if and I'm a, if I'm gonna be a good music a good venue thesis for life I think too I think like authenticity and like become yeah yeah Sorry I think I no but I think authenticity is an important word here it gets yeah. overused a little bit but like I 
you know, if we're going to try and... Cur- That's my forte, <laughs> overusing words. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't brought up a pono 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 yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit. 90 okay. minutes in, no hapunapunapun. I know, what the fuck. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. That's all right. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. if we're going to do our job right, again, yeah. being the medium in between an artist and, and their fan, we need, to, we need to deal with all of these elements, and, and, and that creates that intimate connection. And mm-hmm. then if I'm going to build on the business and grow this thing to 20, 30, 40, 50 locations... The biggest challenge for me trying to create scale is to keep the authenticity, to keep the, the, intimacy. the intimacy together. Yeah. And, um, and, that's, and that's a big challenge when you grow a business. I mean, at 1,500 employees today, you know, how, do you, how, do you, how do you make that connection for every single you know, staff member to understand it? And then when we get to 3,000 or 4,000, how do I make sure that every experience for the customer is going to be as good as the ones we've been having so far. Why don't you think it's enough for you to just like have like one venue? What, why the, why, why the motivation to expand the way all, yeah, all across yeah. the country and then maybe even into and, Europe? And you did have, not to bring up, but you did have some failures along the way, like city winery. Napa, Napa was a, was a failure. Closed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'll go there, but let me answer the deeper question, the harder question, like, you know, why? My mom asked me that a lot. Yeah, and I mean, I think my, it's, I, yeah. by the way, it's no judgment. I think it's, yeah. of course, it's just natural human instinct to want to expand. and. You know, it's not like, yeah, you know, I could have not taken investors on, and, and although it would have been harder on the capital raise, but had I just said, here's here's the thing I want to do and yeah. and and made a whatever comfortable kind of living um right it's it's there's something more than the you know there's something about the idea of growth and and actually doing and bringing the bringing the thesis to more people right it's, you know it's, it, it, it's, it, i think the success is coming from the fact that at the core you're you're aiming to serve people want to serve music. people yeah yeah i mean that is what brings success if you can if you have purpose-driven motivation, like Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza says, that's the most powerful form of motivation. I think he's absolutely right. Like, yeah, you know, when purpose-driven. The, for me, one of the highest compliments that I can get from a from an artist is when you say, or Mark Hone, or whoever it is, and says, "Hey, when are you going to open up in Cincinnati? When mm-hmm. when can you open up a city winery in Denver? Mm-hmm. I need one there. You know, I yeah. got. I love that. And then yeah. th- then the thought for me is, boy, if we had seventy of them. And we were we had this purpose of of serving all these people simultaneously, yeah. magical shows and good food and great wine. Right? How cool is that? So I'm just That's driven cool. by seeing this this thing keep growing. Mm-hmm. But how hard is it for you? You're the C. Your title is CEO and founder. What's your founder title? and CEO. F- founder and CEO. So you oversee them all in a way, and you're in charge of well, them Well, I mean, all. let's be honest, Shlomo does. <laughs> well, but how, how, after what point do you feel like, okay, it's, it's too big and I'm losing control, or does that never happen? Well, it happens. I worry and think about that all day, and a lot of my you know, brain cell focus is, is about our, our management team. You know, Shlomo's in charge of booking and he's been doing a great job. Yeah. But booking is one of like eight, you know, he's one of eight key 
components of what I manage every day. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have our whole winery operation run by also an artistic Frenchman who's like, you know, got his David his thing, LeCompte. David Lecompte. And now I have, a, you know, I have a chief operating officer who's really dealing with all the mechanical parts of keeping these things truly running efficiently. That's and, interesting. And HR has become this thing, right? Like we're in a Me Too movement. So you and, find the and, need to keep creating these positions to manage well, everything? That's the challenge of scale is to figure out a way to delegate with people who can do it even better and, and then keep them motivated and keep them inspired. And one of the things we've been doing as a company from the beginning was I created this company offsite where we went somewhere as a company. And I didn't want to call it a retreat because that was going the wrong direction. So we called it base camp because I always love the metaphor of, of rock climbing and, and mountaineering and stuff where you're, you're looking at the, the, the peaks that you want to climb and accomplish and you do it from a place of safety. And then you review with the team, all right, tomorrow for us to get on top of that mountain, this is what we need to do as a team. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you've got to cut the weak links. And like, there's a lot of great metaphors in, in, in mountaineering. And so I've been doing this, this offsite for 10 years. We're only 10 years old, you mm-hmm. know, and we go to a, a cool place. And two years ago, we went to Puerto Rico after the hurricane and helped. And this year, you know, we're in New Orleans and we did some, you know, give back, which is also part of our company DNA. But the idea is let's get everyone on the same team. Mm-hmm. Let's inspire everyone so they really know who we are. You know, what what we're trying to create in one place, how can we how can we scale it? And mm-hmm. so, you know, get everyone to drink the Kool-Aid. And mm-hmm. and so that for me is one of the the that I know I wake up and realize, all right, how do I get everyone to drink more Kool-Aid today? Like how do they get inside my head? What and how do I do a good job of communicating what I want to see everyone think about, you know, and, and as, as we keep adding more people in more mm-hmm. places, it's more challenging, but that's a challenge in itself that, you know, I, I, I relish. Right on. So you, you said something HR and me too. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's, you know, there's a, you know, never been a, uh, with social media and, and documentation, never been a, a, um, a more challenging time in society, I think, from an HR perspective. What's HR? Human resources. Human resources. So the whole, like, you know, all these people, mostly bad, a lot of them in, in, in the hospitality world and sports and public, you know, public figures who do something wrong, you know, from a just an interpersonal. Forget, mm-hmm. forget legal, but just interpersonal. Like, it's, right. it's not right for me to grope. You know, it's mm-hmm. not right for me to pressure or use my my power, my power to get something, um, you know. And, and then there's a fine line, I think, between flirtation, you know, between certainly a, a staff member. Although, look at many of my staff are have fallen in love and getting married. Like, but in some worlds, that's hard. So, like, drawing those lines has, has right. gotten blurrier. It's gotten more complicated. And, 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 then and with, with more of these developing all over the country, then there's more... More opportunities more for opportunities it. And then for the, it to and go the, the wrong And the bigger way. we become, people think, therefore, we have deeper pockets. So then mm-hmm. the deeper pockets well, we do. have... Also not, r- not really. I mean, you yeah. know, look, at things are certainly better, but, yeah. um, you know, people just feel like, you know, there's, there's more ambulance chasing opportunities yeah. in a HR you know, in a me too world that HR has to deal with. And, and so we're spending a lot of money, you know, having to be properly uh, covered, uh, make sure that every employee knows the what's right and wrong, you know, and, you know, and you have to do like uh, classes. We do. Yeah, we do classes. Interesting. Yeah. 
But I, I want to talk about the book. Okay. Because we just kind of cruised over that a little bit. What motivated you to write the book? I mean, you wanted your mission statement yeah. out there. Did you did you get into a process of waking up at 4.44 a.m. every day and yeah. start writing? Or did you do yeah. the artist's way? What did you do? How did you become a writer? Did you ghost write it? Did Shlomo write it? <laughs> See, here's Shlomo again. Here's Shlomo again. <laughs> Okay, well, gonna, while I'm doing this, sure, why not? Um, Hi. Uh, I'm going to be sketched. You've been sketched by her, I believe. Oh, yeah. Oh, is she? Yeah. Did she do the um, recent Leon Russell? Yeah. Oh, my God, I love your sketches. Yeah, she's really great. We have an artist in the building. Yeah. So You're great. I was at the Leon Russell. Remember? Thank you. I was great, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a great show overall. I was just part of the greatness. Anyway. So, um, uh, actually, what made me really start to think about writing something was um, uh, I'd read Just Kids, Patty Smith, uh-huh. and I saw Patty backstage at Carnegie at one of our tribute concerts. Yeah. And which I, one? Oh God. She's done about four or five, so I'm so I'm a I. little blurry. Yeah. Usually I get called she, in she when did somebody the most cancels. Recent one. I know, but I can't it's like I can't tell you all the tributes you've done because yeah, my brain I probably my, couldn't either. So, yeah, so my yeah. my brain just doesn't have that anymore. So anyway, Patty So Patty's backstage yeah. and I, I actually bring the book in because uh-huh. I'm such a fan and I like say, Patty would you would you would you sign this over to me you know and if she did. Al- also the resale value goes way up then. Let's, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding I, no, uh, <laughs> actually unfortunately it's back to the broken cookie my, thing with my, this guy that was one of the things my my, my son <laughs> Zach sold it by accident yeah uh, but um so <laughs> so um I, I started talking to her and I'm like oh my god like how do you remember all these details? Like, mm-hmm. you know, so many great little nuancy, beautiful memories. And she goes, well, I've kept a diary. I keep a diary every day. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God, I, what a schmuck I am for not writing things down. Because I can't remember well, 50% of the I, things that happened at the Knitting Factory. Because of the last podcast we did, which was with Shelley Wright, um, and who wrote a great memoir herself and then was uh, her mentor's uh, Mary, Mary Carr. Is that it? Let me see. Let me make sure I get that. She wrote memoir. The Art of Memoir. The Art of Memoir. Oh, wow, yeah. Which, when I go to my books, it's probably going to come right up. Yeah. See? Yeah. Mary Carr, you're right. Yeah, That's Mary a- Carr. And, and in this, I just listened to the chapter where it talks about memory and how, like, you know, people don't really remember everything and and it and it's like you you know even and memory is very weak in human beings anyway so it's like and i think it's, it's even it's weaker with bit, me yeah maybe but it's always a bit of a it's always a bit of a thing like that like where you have to kind of say to the best of my recollection yeah anyway so i i wanted to start recalling some of that stuff and then i like your journey like, like from the, the journey and factory. the lessons and like yeah. and i and i was again analyzing what my role in is in this ecosystem and realizing that I've observed some very interesting stuff when mm-hmm. you know started in this thing as a record guy wanting to put out vinyl and then within short time it went 
to CD and then it quickly turned into digital music and then it all went away and it's all about live. And so like I've in a very short time, relatively speaking, been on a pretty interesting path from a from a music producing kind of guy. And so I thought and, and then I've just made all these mistakes. I'm like, there's there's something there. And so then when Patty said that, I was like, God, I just, I got, I got to tell the Lou story. I got to tell this story. I got to tell that story. And then somehow crafted into a book. So then I, you know, that was on my mind. I mentioned it to my uh, PR person who then said, hey, you know, that guy, Paul Keegan, who, who um, had interviewed you for Inc. Magazine, he's, he's, he's ghostwritten a few books you should talk to him Mm -hmm. so i I talked to him and he's like i'd be honored to do it so then we started this back and forth question thing and we started thinking about what would be the arc and the the stories and the lessons and came up with like eight critical periods and chapters where i was learning stuff and tried to try to articulate those the best i could and he did a great job of pulling that out and yeah i got up early in the morning tried to crank things out best i could and some days I was very prolific, and in other days, you know, he really had to, you know, do the job as an interviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he did a great job of, of of capturing my voice on the things that were coming out as gobbledygook mm-hmm. from me, and he made it sound reasonably intelligent, I think. That's cool. Yeah. So inspired by Patty in a way. Yeah, yeah. What was the Lou story that you wanted to tell? Well, there's a bunch of them in there. I mean, Lou... You know, the, I don't know if I finished telling when Hal brought Lou to Leonard Street and we walked into a, a construction site uh-huh. when I was building and, and and Lou just kept wanting me to focus on the stage, make sure the stage is good and, you know, quality. I don't want a hollow stage, you know. And when he was saying I don't want and he had never played at the old knit or I was like, so you you want to play here? And he's like, I don't know, but, you know. You looks good. Looks, you know, <laughs> and and uh, you know, like, and that I don't. There was something, and it just, you know, I, I, I showed him a tremendous amount of respect, and it was cool to bring him in mm-hmm. to a sawdusty place. You know, it made it made it feel like he was, I think, in a, he felt part of what was something that was going to start up, right. and so I've been trying to bring artists into all our new locations during the construction time as much as possible. And then yeah. I'm, I'm trying to do my own little webcasty thing called under construction, which is kind of about that. Cause you know, and then, you know, I, during the golf wars, they were starting to embed journalists and going to, you know, check out the war zone, right? That huh. was the first time I ever heard of an embedded journalist. Well, right. I think there's some, there is something that about embedding and, and touching and feeling the reality, yeah. um, which can help. And so I, I, that was one of the things that, you know, Lou was really, he kept telling me, I got to think about this and got to think about that. What else? Um, well, the dressing the room. The hollow stage thing. I've never even heard of that. Like, re- like you know, I've been performing for 30 years. What's a hollow stage? It's I mean, just when, instead, I get it when it's hollow, but like, then all who can, thinks like that? It can, it can affect the sound, right? Like, and then yeah, all of a sudden, like he's so, like, so he w- sonically centric. He was so it. sonically like, obsessed. Even guitar cables yeah. and shit like that. Yeah. Like, I just don't have that. He I, was really into Meyer sound. He was happy we had a Meyer sound system. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we connected a lot on wine, you know, and he was he was always interested in the learning on the wine. So there's, we had some, we had some good wine sessions, the the... The one I'll never forget was the uh, 
my wife was pregnant with the twins and Lori invited us to their apartment. Mm -hmm. So Sarah and I going to have dinner with Lou and Lori and I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is wild. Like I'm going to have dinner with Lou and Lori Mm -hmm. fucking their apartment. And they had just gotten their new apartment and they, Lori was still freaked out about the radiant floor heating that Mm -hmm. never had. So we walk in, just take off your shoes, you know, and, we're like, all right, sounds very, you know, Asian, Japanese styled. And she's like, no, but feel the floor. The floor feels great, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I, we had connected on this. <laughs> I tried to do it in the Lori voice. It was yeah. pretty good. Yeah. It wasn't so, bad. I, I love Lori. So she, she um, uh, Lou and I had to sing around this one wine. It was the um, 2004 Willamette. Valley, uh, Domaine Joanne Pinot Noir. And it was this, this wine that for some reason, this great photographer had, had turned Lou on and, and then I got turned on to it and it was really good wine. And it was romantic because I remembered the wine and f- brought to this dinner, a Magnum, you know, so a double size bottle of, of, uh-huh. of this Domaine Joanne. And I found the vintage 2004. Right. And so for a couple of wine guys, it was a romantic thing, right. you know. And I, 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 when we came in, after I felt the floor with Lori, right, I went up to Lou's uh, upstairs studio and, 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 and I gave him the bottle. And he breaks into a big smile and pulls out from behind an amplifier a magnum of the same 2004 Domenjo. And he had the same romantic thing he wanted to share with me. So we had two... Magnums of the same wine, so we That's we now amazing. we now open one, and no, this is where the story's going on. This so we had a lot of wine to consume for dinner. Uh huh. My wife is pregnant. Just just became pregnant, so she wasn't showing, and we weren't saying anything yet. Right. So she didn't want to drink any wine, of mm-hmm. course, at night. So we had a deal. You know, she's like, I know you, how important this dinner is for you, and I know you have that Lou connection, mm-hmm. you know, with around wine. So right. I know there's going to be a lot of wine consumed tonight, but yeah. I, I can't drink. And I'm like, I know. She's like, well, I, I, but I don't want to tell anyone, so we're going to fake it. I'll, you drink, and as soon as no one's looking, we'll switch glasses. Uh-huh. So I'm now drinking. Double, twi- I'm drinking a lot. So you're getting <laughs> pulling a fast up. one on Lou. <laughs> so, so I'm getting pretty sloshed, mm-hmm. right? And now we're sitting there. And Wine I, is dangerous, oh. too. I mean. And you got to also understand. So, it, I mean, we were friends, but I'd never yet said to Lou Reed, because I'm just a, you know, dude from Wisconsin. You know, yeah. But I never said to him, like, oh, my God, what was it like being in the Velvet Underground yeah. and, and, like, hanging out with, you know, Andy Warhol? And, like, right. oh, my God, like, t- tell me what it was like, man. Yeah. You know, like, wow, being at the factory. And, you know, like. Yeah. So. And I was always mu- trying to be cool. I was always trying to be cool around him, I was trying to be too. cool. I was trying to be like... I got a funny story where I let it go. Go ahead. So that's you, what happened. Yeah. So, you know... And then you... We, <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't... I couldn't... You, you know, couldn't I, I lost... Back. I lost because I, I was <laughs> yeah, so... Drunk. So drunk. Yeah. And I finally <laughs> was like... I just, <laughs> that was the last time Michael had dinner with Louis. <laughs> no. Uh, he well, I, he appreciated it. He was pretty yeah. drunk, too. Yeah. Okay, go It was ahead. all good. No, that was it. Yeah. Like, I, that what was, did you say? 
I don't remember most of it, but I definitely oh, was almost blackout vibes. Sarah, well, Sarah was telling me you were like talking about, you know, asking him about being on stage when wow. he, when he when he was in different color hair, and you were asking him about the 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 men that he had, you know, been. Oh, you went like, there. Oh, I went everywhere. Wow. Apparently. <laughs> wow, my story's not that involved. I just one time texted him like because I was listening to the song Coney Island Baby, and. Uh, which ironically is where we started this podcast at a club called Coney Island Baby. But uh, I wrote him, um, you know, that song Coney Island Baby, I think is the best song anyone's ever written. And, uh, or I said, I'm sorry to fan out or something like that. And then I like just kept looking at my phone to see if he was going to text me back. And he didn't text me back for a while. And then he, then he wrote back like saying, you know, thank you. I love you no matter what no matter how you approach me or something along those lines yeah. like he was very very sweet magnanimous and sweet about it like you know he understood that i kind of went fanboy on him for a second you know yeah no and so i, I went over the you top fanboy way 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 and and i think he saw it as sweet like yeah you know he saw it as sweet and i'm sure he was sweet to me really and Till he died, you know. He was a really sweet guy. Yeah, I think to like if you kind of got been behind, be, uh, you know, behind or you know the 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 his he had a the veneer. He, he had a, the, he had a veneer that but, was uh, but, intimidating. Yeah, but uh, the way I see it too is like he was a living legend, and he was he was approach he was out on the street, New York City, like all the time. Yeah. So oh, it's yeah. like. Yeah, there's a lot of stories of Lou probably icing people, but it's like, think about it. If you're like that, and he chose to be in the world. Exactly. So, of course, you know. So. You need to be able to do that, or else yeah. you can't go out. Exactly. Did, yeah. did it ever That's awesome. come up where you almost booked him to play here? Because in my memory, he never did. He never here. He never played here. and. He um, came to shows here, though. He yes, came to shows here a bunch. Here a few yeah, times. yeah. And the satyrs, but actual? Did you try to? Book yeah, them? no. He only. You're right. He he only. He did a few satyrs here. Um, so he has always had this um, very strong talent agent, Marsha Vlasic, um, and she's got a veneer, but also it's part of who she is she she protects her artists mm -hmm. um in fact so lou and i became you know buddies and he would call me or send me a a, a fax <laughs> he he was a fax guy mm -hmm. and um he he after a run of shows he sent me a note or, or called i can't remember what it was but he, it was a call and he goes you know hey i want to do another three nights and i'm like all right i, I i'll call i'll call marcia velasic um, and try and book the nights. And he goes, well, I, I got to do like August, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, he's like, okay, but those are the dates. So then I call Marsha and go, um, so Lou called me and, and he would like to play at the Knitting Factory August 21, 22, and 23. And she's like, you talked to Lou about dates? I'm like, he called me mm -hmm. and, and uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I wrote him down to just to help you know, get the information to you, Marsha. Mm -hmm. She's like, do not yeah. ever speak to my 
artist again you mm. know and i was like well by the way that's like for people out there like that's common in a way yeah, it like, is but like I, for like the like the protocol thing i should have known a better way to well, bring could, that you, to her if lou asked you he asked you i you know I, well, I could i <laughs> if in retrospect 20 years later I could have delivered that information or to Marsha better. Or you Lou, like, hey, you got to talk to Marsha. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's even wiser, Joe. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't have any of that. I was like, yeah. I booked, you, you know. Psyched. Super psyched, right? Yeah. And, and so anyway, she got mad at me. I know she likes wine, too. So I started sending her bottles of wine when I was going to open this place. Mm-hmm. And I gave her a walkthrough because I, I would not book Lou without doing it correctly through Marsha. And whatever it was when I opened here, I guess 2008, you know, he did a, a couple more Beacon shows, which he, he loved the Beacon Theater. Mm-hmm. He really loved the Beacon Theater. I talked to him six times about doing the, the, the doing a tribute at Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And he's like... Oh, for, for Lou. For, yeah. You know, and uh, he's like, ah, don't you want to do it at the Beacon? And I'm like, nah, I want, this, is a, <laughs> this is a Carnegie thing. He goes, ah, I don't, I'm not interested. Please don't honor me. And I'm like... That's so funny. You know, but... I don't Why know. Why did he like that's so wild that he didn't want to be honored? But and sadly, we never did you know real shows here. Have that's okay. Has there it, been a memory. new tribute that you've done at Carnegie? No, no. So there has been a Let's couple of one. there's been a couple of Lou tributes that Hal, you yeah. know, has done, and and again, Hal's the right person mm-hmm. to really do it. You yeah. know, like I wouldn't. You know, again, I respect Hal way that's too true. much, and yeah. so. Um, uh, we wanted to Maybe do, we could do one together. Yeah, we could. And we're doing a little memory. You know, we're doing this 10 year series of people who, who were here performed and officially Lou did perform at the Seder a couple of times. But so we're doing something around Lou uh, this Wednesday, actually. Um, wow. uh, I guess too late again for the podcast. It's a, um, uh, a memory. So we're doing 10 people who passed during the 10 years and that we were here. played the Leon Russell. Yeah. Oh, cool. You, yeah. You were part of the Leon. Yeah. And you know we got. Um, Who's it's amazing. One? I don't know. Shlomo would know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Shlomo when you need him? I think Lori is going to be here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. I want to come. You should. Yeah. I think it's Wednesday. I'm going to come. You're always welcome. So when is the new location opening up? Technically. Um, on paper. On paper, we should be opening Pier Fifty Seven in january could be in february might go as late as march but i i think we should be able to hit the end of january and when's the book out book comes out october 4th and we're doing all kinds of pre-sale things because one thing i didn't know about selling books is it's really hard yeah um uh and so uh uh when will this podcast come out uh august the oh. beginning of August. So what? Yeah, soon. So, so what I'm doing? Pro- do here, promo. I'll do a promo. Yeah. Anybody? Because we got to wrap it up. Okay. We've here been, we go. We've been going for a while, haven't we? What do you think? Almost two hours. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's long. That's good. So here's here's my here's my gift to all of your. Uh, maybe it's not a gift, and it's more sure. of a sell. But it but, certainly is a gift. Let's but uh, hear it. anybody who pre buys the book uh-huh. and sends me their Amazon receipt gets broken cookies we'll get some broken cookies and a hard hat tour and a bunch of wine of the new pier 57 before we open so i'll uh i'll take where, you where in there pre-order it? you pre-order it on amazon and then you send in the receipt to michael's book at citywinery.com and uh and i'll give you a hard hat tour if That's you buy great. if you buy 10 of them 
I'll buy you lunch. Wow. <laughs> buy a hundred of them, and I'll clean you know your kitchen. What's the who's the publisher? Be careful because this is on yeah, the yeah. record with the <laughs> kitchen. That's all right. I'll clean the kitchen <laughs> yeah, for po- real for a hundred books, man. It's hard to sell books. Um, Post Hill Publishing is the publisher, and uh, you know we're doing the whole thing. You know the Barnes and Noble and Hudson News, and I'm going to be all over the place in October. It's kind of fun. Are you going to do a I, book tour? Yeah, but there's not that much. You know, I'm going to go to the city wineries and some other stuff. It's just, it's very odd for me, who's always promoted talent, to be on the other side for mm-hmm. a change and, and even talk about myself in the third person. Like, I got a book coming out. Like, it's just weird to say. Yeah. It's kind of fun, but I yeah. haven't fully gotten comfortable with the whole with the whole thing. Yeah. Well, you never will. Yeah. Maybe. It we'll never see. It never gets comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> And I had just one last question as far as uh, you're a huge music fan and you've had a lot of the, your uh, idols in here, probably at the Knitting Factory. What was one of the highlights for you mm. at, at stage here at City Winery? Besides having Joseph, right? Yes. Right. Um, I'm one of the, I've played here as many, almost as much as anybody. Yeah, you've been here a lot. Many, it's great. Many, many times. You have a great fan base too, yeah. right? They've, they've loved seeing you here. Yeah, too. it's been great. Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna keep going. It's gonna yeah, keep for going. sure. But um, oh no, my new album's hot, coming out October tenth. Is it? Oh, yeah. let's bundle. You, back you should play his book tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So it's highlights, and then what's like the biggest miss that you know that almost happened? Well, I certainly screwed up on fish, right? right. <laughs> um, but then you know what's funny is I became friendly with the band, and, and Mike Gordon did one of the first kind of cool. Um, social media driven shows here so we became buddies and and so the first few months we opened Mike Gordon had a birthday party here and then the band came and some members of the dead showed up Mike Gordon is Mike Gordon is the bass bass player in fish and and I said to him when I booked the the party he goes ask me like 50 people and we're gonna keep it mellow and i'm like cool and i was like do you want us to have backline on the stage in case you know you guys want to just jam as friends and Mm -hmm. all that And he goes no backline for sure we're not gonna play and then um uh you know different people started coming and around seven o'clock i said to mike gordon so what do you think? Should we just get like a, a bass rig and a get you know guitar amp and a you know and it's it's getting seven o'clock. Mark Coletti's going home and the SIR is going to close really soon. And he's like, no, for sure, no no backline, please. I we don't want this to you know no no playing live tonight. It's just it's just a birthday party. Yeah. At about nine o'clock, you know. Bill Kreutzmann from the dead shows up and he's in a good mood and there's a few other, you know, musicians and, and a, like a couple bass guitars got given as a gift. And, uh, so Mike Gordon looks at me and goes, Hey, is there any way you could get like a, an amp and a, uh, drum rig and, and maybe a guitar amp? So I'm like, Oh God. So AKA I, a back line. Yeah, so I get all this back line <laughs> Which I, he said, no way. And I, I, we got it here about 10 o'clock. And then, you know, I said to him, uh, uh, do you want, are you going to play? And he goes, yeah, I think we're going to play. I go, do you want some more people to come in? And he's like, sure. And he goes, I said, so can, can I, you know, send out a little tweet kind of thing. And, uh, and this was 10 years ago. So I wasn't very prolific in that world. So I needed help. And, um, he said, sure. So, 
I sent a note to Pete Shapiro, you know, at Brooklyn Bowl. He was just open, just had opened. And my brother, who's a real deadhead and members of the dead and fish are on jumping on stage. And within 30 minutes, this place was packed to the rafters, like Mm -hmm. 500 people, you know, experiencing this crazy birthday party. That was cool. That showed the power of social media for sure, because that yeah. happened fast. But um, for, like, the number one musical highlight, you know, was Prince. Um, right. Oh my goodness. How did that happen? I was there. Oh my God, was that just mad? It was just like it was unbelievable. Yeah. People still talk about that as a legendary. <laughs> it was like, that well, they walked out and it was. I there, came. Right? I came Saturday night. He and waited all night. He didn't play. Right. Sunday, then it was about three, three, eight, three, three o'clock. He morning. went on. He went. He went on. The place was packed. But what was weird, and he played like a you know a, like a Madison Square Garden level concert. He had like the, the had all a, girl the horn, band, and, the and then horn he had a section. horn section. Two yeah, different new, bands. New power generation. Yeah, yeah, two two different bands. Yeah. His own sound system, but what what's what struck me is. Uh, is uh people were like even were leaving like it got emptier as it went and i got kicked out because oh, you because you had you took a photo i think you tried to help me not get kicked out but i got kicked out anyway <laughs> yeah like uh like two hours <laughs> in too like i like took a photo and then like uh, you know no, which, he, he brought his own security and the, and his security guy came up and said give me your phone and i'm like no and then they were like then you have to leave and i'm like okay and um, I took my friend with me. Like we left, but I just walked right That's around it. the side and right and back a, into the nice. side door. Well, you knew because I knew. You knew the and, side door. And all of a sudden, I'm with James Jamerson, getting my picture taken with him because I got kicked out. And then I walked right back into the front of the stage. <laughs> nice. It was like nothing had happened. And then he did like solo piano. Oh my god! The, the like, encores dude, he it did was like it was unbelievable. And like it, when we got kicked out, I was like, "Oh well, he's been playing for two hours anyway." Right, it's almost over. It's almost over. No, it was going to go on for another hour. Six so fifteen, he finished, dude. And it was unfucking real. Was, By the time it was six fifteen, it it wasn't that packed in there either. Like you, like it was. People you, had to go to work. People it had was to go a to Monday work. Monday morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but the, so the the weird thing is, you're walking around City Winery and Prince is going off, and you're and it's not even rammed. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was it like was, it, it was like, unbelievable. It, and well, you have to yeah. also tell people it was a nine o'clock show, and whoever wanted to see him had to wait for yeah. five hours, and he might show oh, up. Oh yeah. Night. So yeah. I so I got two sidebars on this. One yeah, is yeah, no, go. at six fifteen. I had to go in. Uh, you no, know, no, no. I'm yeah. glad you, you told. It, and it was it was as as big a show as as I could have ever ever imagined. Yeah. And he was he was one of my absolute all time favorites growing yeah, up me, in Wisconsin and Minneapolis and all that. So, but at six fifteen. I went up to him on the side of the stage and I was with one of my sons who kind of persevered and went through the whole thing with me. And I put my arm on his shoulder just to like thank him, just a you know, little physical contact. And by the way, you know, he was several inches shorter than me, which was fantastic for me yeah. for a change. And um <laughs> and he was wearing he was in he had he had shoulder uh uh you know, no shoulder uh, what do you call it, a tank top. Yeah. He had a tank top. Yeah, he had a tank top. Yeah. My wife beat her. And he had the softest, non sweaty <laughs> shoulders and arms. Like, he had just finished three hours of kicking ass on stage. He was kicking ass. And it was like he hadn't broken a sweat. Like, he had somehow, between the time I saw him come off the stage, because I was on the stage for the f- 
fourth encore. He came off, and somehow I blinked, and he baby powdered his whole body or something because it was mm-hmm. so <laughs> soft and dry. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man, that was incredible. And, and all I could think about was, those are the nicest soft arms I've ever felt. <laughs> Actually, oddly enough, Lou Reed had incredibly soft skin too. But uh-huh. um, the other, the other, the thing was, do you know what happened on the Wednesday before this whole thing started? What? So I was on a video vlog like this, uh-huh. and I don't do these a lot, but it was like, and this is a podcast. All right, so I was on a vlog. <laughs> I, sorry, I was nah, on a vlog. A shit, I was on a vlog. I don't even know the. It might have been I'm a just, podcast. I'm joking. I'm not even sure anyway, I do either. Yeah. And <laughs> and they were saying, so how did you get prints? And I said, well, you know, I, we did a tribute the year before. And we thought we were getting the after party, but I've been sending him requests to play an after party at, 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 it started with the knitting factory. I've been sending requests to do an after party for a long time. I've been trying to get this motherfucker to play forever. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I said it in the most, you know, and it, when I came out and I said, motherfucker, I didn't think about it. I just, you know, he's Prince, he, you know, this is, this is sexy this, motherfuckers. One of his right, songs. Right, this is jazz yeah. rock and roll. Right. Within 30 seconds, I get a text going, <laughs> please, um, call me from who Prince. And I'm like, Oh, and then, and then the next thing was like, what is your number? And I'm like, uh, it's the number that you, you just, just texted <laughs> me. <laughs> so then, so then the phone rings. What is your number? <laughs> what is your number? Oh my God. And it was one of his, he, he had two 22 year old assistants that mm-hmm. were working with him on this thing. He ended up firing one by the Sunday night show, but um, both young assistants saying, um, uh, we heard what you called Prince and you know, one, he doesn't swear and that's not his name. And I'm like, what? You used a curse word, and that's not his name. And I'm like, oh man, and I, I, I didn't mean it. To, I mean, I, I was I said it in in respect you know, and we're love. Back, we're book we're bookending this because we're back to the power of words and people that understand the power of words. And Prince and better Prince than any other the power look. of words. So the fact that the word. Does he have like a network where somebody says something I, bad about him? I and don't they know, but so, call that so they up? they said. Unfortunately, I know, you know, the, the band's planned for four nights and stuff, but um, Prince is not going to be able to perform uh, because at City Winery because, because, because of what you said. That's Boom, not his name. That's a fucking amazing and, and I was And I was like, excuse my language. oh, my God. Peace. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I, goes, and wait, wait, I said, hold on, like, what did you think at that moment? Did did you like? Did your heart sink my, to my your heart, stomach? Yeah, it was. Like you just blew it. I, 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 I screwed up again. Dorf, you screwed up again, and you tried to be. What's Dorf backwards, bro? <laughs> yeah, you, you, tr- you tried to be cool. You tried to like go. Hey, no, you tried I tried to, to get him a little. Yeah. Like I tried to be cool, and I yeah. screwed up again. Yeah, you know, and I wasn't even drunk. I just mm-hmm. was, and so this is worse than when you went on and on with Lou and asking him about. Oh, this is bad. This with. was the worst. Like I, I completely screwed up. Everyone was so psyched. Like I'm uh-huh. getting calls from everyone. You know, going like, oh my god, you got Prince coming. You know, yeah. so. I'm like, is there anything I could do to this 22-year-old on the phone? And she goes, well, let me, hold on. And then like a few seconds later, um, Prince says that um, (laughs) you need to write 100 times, I'm sorry, your name is Prince. 
And if you write that down, take a photo and then text it back, we'll reconsider. I'm sorry, your name is Prince. I'm sorry, your name is Prince. I'm sorry, your what name is Prince. Fuck, dude. I'm this sorry. Story is like, your name is Prince. I mean, <laughs> so, dude, like, come yeah. on. So, here, this one, slow mo. Dude, like, I never heard you this. are yeah. Prince. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. You care yeah. that, like, so, it's like it's, unbelievable. Slow mo has, yeah. has video on his phone of me writing this. So, I'm like writing it on a, on a yellow pad. I'm writing as fast as I can. I bet you he counted. I'll tell you what. I know when we do graffiti upstairs, I'm going to write, I'm sorry, your, your name, name is Prince. Prince at yes. least once. So, you know, in, in homage, I mean, look at he. So I don't know. So I did it. I took the photo. How long did it take you to do it? Uh, and how long did it take you to decide to do it? Instantly, you're going to do I would it. say. Or did your I would pride s- kick in at all or no? Just a tiny bit. A but tiny bit? Just a tiny, tiny bit. But I was like, no. Because I'm like, me, I'm taking that deal. I'm like, okay, yeah. I will do that. Yeah. Like, But I, your pride kicked in? No, for, for, for a thirteenth of a second. Like, okay. I, but I did Barely. think, I did think like, oh, oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? But this is like great but because this is like the genius that's artist Prince level stuff. Well, like the, the people who are genius artists do have this like childlike thing that remains intact that enables them to be like creatively genius, but also has that flip side to where like they might make you write, "I'm sorry, my name is Prince" a hundred times. Yeah. yeah. Just it, like it's just, Simpson on the, it was on unbelievable. The so know you know, that. obviously oh, yeah. he, he did it, and I'm so glad I bent over and wrote that and i would do that you know for for artists all day long so so you did that and then you texted it and then what happened then she came about an hour later to pick it up to oh she wanted double, the hard copy double, yeah she like what you're faking the picture of it somehow i don't know but i don't um no she just wanted to verify it i don't know she but she came but to the text to pick picture's it up. not verification enough at that point like i'm thinking like they, to like manipulate a text picture of that would be harder than just doing it it's like, dude it's but, prince you don't have i know prince, i know, prince, <laughs> prince, I know. he had two ask. he had two 22 year old assistants um yeah. and he sent one of them out to collect this saying to make sure it was and then i actually the first few minutes that I got to chat with him which was an honor I asked him about his young assistants and he said something um that I'll never forget he said uh uh he might have said called me Michael I don't remember if he ended up knowing my name but he he was like uh I need I need to be surrounded by youth I need youth gives me life but just real quick i remember like at three in the morning thinking like man after two spending two nights waiting for prince thinking he wasn't gonna come on and you kind of get mad and you're just like ah man fuck prince (laughs) but the minute he walks on stage he charmed like charms all that right out of you because the dude was funny that was the thing i wasn't expecting like i wasn't expecting him to be so likable and funny like that you know anyway he so. he he was he was amazing yeah he truly was one of the that great was the great full afro prince version right yeah right. he had a big afro he had a specter you know sphere whatever you yeah. call it that cane and he was he truly he was, was he was a magic magic man well that's a good place to yeah. end this yeah. thank you thank, thank you, you michael wow. really appreciate it thanks ahud my pleasure Wow, we jammed. We killed him. We a lot of... That was fun. That was fun.
Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated.